Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast, episode 287. Uh, we're back again with uh, one of our favorite guests on the show, Kevin McKernan. Thanks a lot for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. 287 is a big number. Good for you guys. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I still look back and think about how uh, Marty and I having a disagreement on Facebook turned into uh, you know, 800 hours of educational content on cannabis, but it certainly did. <laughs> and you haven't been banned. That's amazing. Right? I mean, we've come close. There's twice that we've come within one strike of losing the channel. So uh, it's not for lack of trying. I'll put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, we also have uh, Fumidor with us today. Thanks a lot for joining us, Fumi. Howdy. Cheers, guys. Happy to be here. Nice to see you. Uh, where can people find you real quick before we get started? Uh, I have a website, uh, Fumador, uh, Fumadoro.com. Uh, honestly, is uh, the best way. Uh, you can pick up some uh, interesting genetics over there. But also we have a, a, a couple of fun podcasts per week, basically. We just had one yesterday uh, over at my channel, Fumador and the Flavors, uh, over on YouTube. So basically change the channel ever so slightly from Potent Ponics when it's over uh, to Fumador and the Flavors. And you'll see some good content from uh, uh, us uh, talking to Coot and talking to Potent and uh, Jinx Proof a couple of weeks ago. Lots of good stuff. So thanks for asking. Cheers. I think you might actually have more more hours of content than even I do. Uh, <laughs> it's possible because we have this long those long shows. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Five sure. six hour shows sometimes straight up. Um, well, you guys can check uh, Marty and myself, uh, who's the normal co-host of the show, who wasn't able to join us this evening, over at uh, APMJClass.com. We do have a long format aquaponic cannabis class. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about aquaponic cannabis from top to bottom, uh, hash making, pest control, nutrients, um, planting, um, all different types of hybrid systems and everything else you can think of, uh, uh, be sure to check that out. We have over 700 slides and lectures uh, individually on, on that uh, class. So be sure to check that out if you're uh, looking for that type of info. You can, you can use Q, uh, coupon code AP420 in order to save 75 bucks off the class. Now through about 28 hours from the recording of the show, uh, the end of Earth Day. So uh, if you're looking for a discount on that, um, now's the time. Uh, we only do real two big discounts, uh, one for 420 and one for um, Black Friday. So definitely check that out if you're looking for a, a little bit cheaper access to aquaponic cannabis knowledge. Um, we also have a new aquaponic can uh, class, uh, I'm sorry, cannabis class, I'm sorry, my, my brain is a, a bit fried today, uh, too many hours in the sun. Um, you, you can check out our, our new uh, aquaponic, uh, I'm sorry, blah, I can't even talk tonight, um, our new cannabis class uh, out in uh, Oca uh, Oklahoma City with Jordan River and myself from Growcast, or we're going to be doing a regular monthly grow club out there, so uh uh, Jordan and I are going to give uh, little local grow classes on, you know, how to grow at a home scale. We're not going to make it anything about commercial, but we're going to have a little bit of a, a monthly meetup. So if you're looking for seeds and you're in the Oklahoma City area, uh, or you're looking for more just general information for, uh, you know, a, a new community to hang out with, definitely check us out. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Kevin. I know uh, we were hoping to, to hear from you earlier this year, or I guess it was the end of last year, but uh, uh, you were you were quite sick there for a little while, but uh, uh, we're happy to have you back. And um, 
Uh, thanks a lot for joining us tonight. I know you have a ton of amazing stuff to tell us about tonight, and you launched a whole new project yesterday, which we're going to get to in a bit. And you have a whole amazing conference that you got going on next week and all kinds of other amazing stuff. You're truly one of the leaders when it comes to open source knowledge. And I think kind of this, the kind of leading the way and in, in the way that the genomic sector needs to be in terms of open source and all the rest. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to... Uh... Share some of the info with you. Yeah, we did. We did just release a. Uh, I think there's 84 genomes now. So uh, this is the Slosby genomes that we put public uh, on 419, uh, and then um, we did some stuff that's actually probably um, worth chatting about in your community as well with the Humble Grace Project, legacy project. I think they're they're doing some work in building like an auction house that's run on blockchains and a, and a way to uh, secure um, smart contracts and IP rights on people's genetics and. If there's sequencing involved, there's uh, there's that angle as well. So, um, yeah, two big days. Uh, a lot of things uh, announced on uh, on uh, four nineteen and four twenty. It's hard now that you're in both spaces. You have to prepare for both days, and <laughs> they're they're back to back. Especially if you're into organic chemistry, it's uh, it's quite a busy week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As someone who's equally as passionate about uh, organic chemistry as you are. Uh, there's quite a few different things. A lot of people don't know that uh, not only did Albert Hoffman discover um, um, LSD and lysergic acid, but he also was the first person to synthesize and isolate uh, psilocybin and psilocybin and the per, uh, person who administered chemical derived psilocybin to Maria Sabina uh, and took it with her to see if she thought there was any difference. So he really did play out. And not only that, but I mean, the Hoff, Hoffman degradation and I mean, the guys literally played such an incredible role in uh, in the history of many things that a lot of us are passionate about. Yeah, no, indeed, that that's uh, it's fascinating history as well. And and there's um, there's been some progress on people actually cloning some of that pathway into yeast. Um, I think Hofmeister's lab did that, and so they can get yeast to brew this stuff now. Um, it, I think that's been give, giving it a particular. Uh, L-tryptophan precursor. And then um, I don't think as much has been done yet on the beta carboline pathway, which is something that is, uh, the, the paper came out demonstrating that some of the mushrooms also make those and they're MAO inhibitors. So they slow down the metabolism of, of psilocybin and um, presumably increase um, blood levels of, of uh, those drugs. So, and I think one of them is actually, uh, they, they believe is psychoactive as well. So there's um that whole side of the pathway, we just don't know what genes make those. Um, I think we have a good understanding of the genes that make um, everything on the psilocybin side of the pathway, but what we're trying to chart out with some of these genetics is, are there any variants in these genomes that might predict um, things that might arrest along that pathway? Very, very analogous to CBG moving its way into CBD or THC, that there's a precursor here and on its way to becoming psilocybin, there's a couple stops on the way that could make uh, the other compounds, originacin, baocystin, and norbaocystin. So there's um, there's an entourage effect we got to keep our eye on in this thing. I've never really thought about that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, especially with things like capicopy and tetrahydroharmaline and some of the other things, there, there's there been no studies done on any of the genetics around amplifying compounds or any, you know, uh, some of the other things that are synergistic with a lot of the things that people traditionally understand as medicine or medicinal compounds. Yeah, the one thing I did learn 
digging into some of this literature is that psilocybin is mostly made in the fruits, the carbophores, and um, the beta carbolines, they seem to be a hundredfold higher in the mycelium. So there, there, there may be a class of genes that are related to both of these that are differentially expressed in different tissue types. And maybe that, I don't know, maybe that'll, we need to do some RNA sequencing to sort of figure this out and see if there's a, um, you know, different, if there's certain differential genes that are expressed that kind of highlights what areas we should be looking at a little bit more closely. Um, those are, of course, a little bit more difficult to do these days because uh, getting RNA out of uh, live fruit is, uh, is naughty at least in where I live. <laughs> so it has to probably be done in Canada or somewhere else. It's really interesting because so many of these compounds have had such an incredible effect on people's lives, yet we know so little about them on a genetic level. And I think that it's almost comical that, that how little we understand about some of those things. Uh, and then also just how, how critical the work that you're doing in terms of putting these sequences into the open source um, kind of setting, you know, and preventing these from being locked down by... Uh, of various nefarious entities that we've seen uh, attempted so many times in the cannabis side. Yeah, I think some of that's already happening. I, I've um, I heard there are some patents on the application of psilocybin for depression that might go back to Compass. Um, so, yeah, that game's that game's playing itself again. Um, did you guys see that? Um, I'm curious of your take on the DA announcement recently about Type One cannabis seeds. Um, yeah, some news about that, which it's is a bit of a departure. Um, a very huge departure. So that, that um, we've always been going under the more stringent guidelines of the Hemp Industry Association versus the DEA, where the DEA was pretty adamant about it, it can't be viable tissue. Um, so we, we've always been having people isopropanol treat anything that they send. First off, no leaves, no flowers. Send us, you know, if you do sequencing, send stems that have been isopropanol treated that strips the cannabinoids off, but also fits the bill of making it non-viable. But now they've kind of stripped that viability um, issue. And I'm wondering if that sets a precedence for, um, for psilocybin, because obviously the spores have been legal for decades and no one seems to have gotten any trouble selling these spores. Um, and I know one or two cases maybe where they were selling and growing and that, that crossed the line, but the spores seem to have gone across, um, state I lines think, quite readily. I think the real trial case would be to see if, um, um, peyote seeds because peyote and cannabis are the only two species that are banned by the DEA. Um, unless you can correct me on, and you know, of another oh, one, yeah. those are the only two specific species that are banned by the DEA. So, you know, does that nullify that across the board? You know, can you, can you purchase, um, uh, peyote seeds and for peyote buttons, you know, in a seed form, as long as it's not clonal tissue, you know, and the other thing question is, is that, the way that they ruled that seed ruling, like, does that also apply to clones? Because I know that's clones, what I was, I think some 0.3% or higher. So like, yeah, yeah. I think some people are interpreting that way. And that's, that does certainly change the dynamics of like the clone market. And I think it also is going to change the, the, the uh, migration of pathogens. There's you know, obviously there's a lot of HLV or hop lane virus out West. There's uh, scarier shit than that. I'll tell you personally, and I'm happy to throw some pictures up of it. And I've shown this on Fumi show a couple of times. There's a, a um, as far as my, again, this is all anecdotal. And let me preface everything I'm about to say with, this is strictly based on my personal observations at three different grows. Oh uh, no, yeah. we're going to cancel you if it's not peer reviewed. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm so sick of that shit. Um, uh, but 
I have observed a, a cucumber beetle, as far as I can tell, cucumber beetle vectored virus or bacteria that melts plants in two to three weeks. Um, but we've not been able to get any type of ID on it. Um, it's something that I'm very much interested in sending off to you, but this is what it does yeah. to the bottom of the leaves. And I, I sent some of the pictures of this stuff to every pathologist I can think of oh, wow. um, in terms of mosaic patterning. But every plant that got this particular disease was attacked by um, cucumber beetles. So I was very curious on. There is on a cucumber that. mosaic virus. I think we've been, we've had our eyes on. I wonder if it's, did you know if it's virus or bacterial or is it? Uh... I, I'm not sure. All, all I know is, is that here, I can show you the top of that same leaf here. Hold on. Um, where is it here? So here's the bottom of the leaf and here's the top of the leaf. So here's the bottom and then here's cool. the top. The top does not look anywhere near as bad as the bottom. Yeah. That's the weird thing about it is that it has this weird one dimensional patterning. Have you, have you scanned it for HLV? I have not. These were all, the other reason is the, these plants had both spider mites and cucumber beetles and yeah, yeah. sitting in Oklahoma. So like not a really limited choice of vectors on that one. And it was outdoor, right? So. I mean, th there was a study that came out of Colorado on beet curly top virus. I mean, the odd thing is a lot of these mosaic things, when we first saw that on some plants out here, that Colin Palmer. Oh, I, have, I have good pictures of beet curly top that have been confirmed. Uh, hold on. Give me, give me two more seconds. I can pull those. One second. So these were from a confirmed beet curly top virus infection. Hold on. Wrong year. I'm going to go to 2019 uh hold on i got some really good pictures of those ones too um the, a buddy of mine ran into a bunch of that in oklahoma i'm sorry oregon so here's beet curly top for those of you that aren't aware at home oh god yes yeah, unique you know there's really strange curling yeah Yeah, not, not a lot of mosaicism there. It's just the curling of the leaves. Um, yep. we, we have seen that mosaic pattern, though, in some hop latent viroid infections, huh. um, which is, it, it wasn't in all of the plants, but that's what was kind of bizarre. Some of them would give you that, uh, it, it was a little bit more, more, more extreme chlorosis than what you're seeing. Yours just looks like it's going a little bit like, you know, an albino or what have you. It's, it's not as yellow, but. Um, I have yeah. some more progressive pictures on that on my I think they're on my phone and not on this account on the computer, but yeah, that the, there's quite a few different I've seen that in two in the mosaics. I've seen probably in my opinion, four different mosaic species that I can, that have consistent patterning that's unique to that, you know, variation of whatever, you know, either be it strain yeah. or, or species um, at least in all the years that I've done it between, you know, all of these. And I, I think that just like you're saying the cucumber alfalfa mosaic, and we're going to find more of them that are jumping over. Yeah. And the interesting thing is they're not always the same sequence as what you find in the plant that it might be named after. So um, uh, there's tobacco mosaic has been thought to be in cannabis. Uh, I've heard recently um, from Punja that he's found it on cannabis, but it's, it's, it's diverged enough from the initial one to probably require um, 
you know, unique uh, primers for it, at least in the PCR front, but it is getting picked up by an ELISA. Um, so there's a, that one's finally checked off. The longest time we're like, we've just not seen it in the literature yet. It's, you know, but, but it's different. And, and this, this, what really, um, I guess this isn't too surprising given these things are RNA viruses, but there was another um, study out of Colorado and that person was on the CanMed podcast, um, Coffee Talk, talking about uh, what they had found and their, their tobacco streak virus was only like 83% identical to the one that's been found in tobacco and also needed some adjustments uh, in order to properly pick it up. So um, I think we got to do is take a plant like that and, you know, the first thing to screen it for is probably do an RNA-seq analysis to see if you can find novel viruses. And if, if you don't find RNA viruses, you then have to go looking for DNA ones, which are a little um, perhaps easier. But um, and then, of course, try to get the microbiome out of it because it could be a bacteria or fungi. But it's not always easy to get those off the cannabis plant because it comes with all of this background cannabis DNA. So you're mostly sequencing the genome of the plant and hoping to find some reads that, that um, represent the microbiome. And you don't always, you usually find more than one microbe there. So you don't know which one's the causative agent unless you can maybe culture it or re-inoculate onto some other plant and, and go through that whole Koch's postulate um, approach. But um, it's, not a, uh, it's not a simple one and done single test tells you the answer on those things. It's really an R&D project to go and discover what the hell it is and um, and, 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 and is it really widespread such that it's worth like developing tests for it that would, you know, track it in more than one place? Sure. Um, you just mentioned the, the CanMed podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and more people can find it. Oh yeah. It's called Coffee Talk. I think it's on iTunes. Um, but uh, yeah, Ben, uh, Ben's been running that out of MDC and has a great list of guests up there. They're usually guests that are uh, about to be speaking at CanMed or, or have spoken at CanMed. So there's, there's, a, there's a tie in there, um, but it spans the gamut. We get a lot of you know, analytical chemists on there. We get uh, folks speaking about all these viruses, tissue culture people, uh, you know, the, the whole, uh, and all the way to, to folks, you know, physicians treating people with, uh, with very cannabinoid profiles. So um, worth a listen. Yeah, it's, uh, I didn't even realize you had a podcast as well, or I would have been listening in this whole time because you're definitely a. a yeah, oh, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't run it. I, I'm lucky if I get on it. Uh, I couldn't. I don't have the time of the day. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, all that credit goes to goes to Ben. Um, you'll you'll meet him at uh, at CanMed. So uh, tell us a bit more about CanMed and some of the awesome uh, talks that you have coming up for this year. Yeah, so you know it's it's going to be a great year because it's been like two years of buildup. We we kept trying to have this thing and it kept getting COVID canceled because um, it was in California and of course California was a little bit more strict than other places. But uh, Pasadena was still not allowing us to have it, or they were allowing it to be done with all types of um, discomforting things of like you know masking and vaccine and testing and all this madness. So we just kept punting it because we felt like that would be a miserable experience. Um, but finally, it's happening. So um, there's, a, there's a host of folks. There's, I think there's going to be some discussion there about um, this legacy, this, this uh, Humble Grace legacy project that Lele has been organizing. Um, they'll hopefully lay out the whole infrastructure of that auction system. Um, I'll, be, I'll be giving a presentation on some of the psilocybin work that we're doing. Uh, Vaughn's giving some presentations on um, some of the uh, pathogen detection um, uh, things we've been doing the last year. Uh, yeah, there's a there, there's a website that has um, a list of the the schedule should be up there now. So there's a 
uh, spreads the gamut. Uh, I think Seth's going to probably be, Seth Crawford's probably going to be there talking about triploids and whatever else they're up to lately. Um, I, I'm, I'm having a bad time recalling everything from memory because I remember reading these abstracts two years ago, and I'm sure whatever people are speaking about the next week is probably diverged from the abstract they sent us by two years. So uh, they're, they're somewhat placeholders, but um, it's, uh, it's long overdue. Uh, we've been missing this kind of in-personal uh, uh, conference that's, uh, you know, these Zoom things are, as, as, as fun as they are, they're not the same thing as, uh, you know, hanging out with everybody and sharing notes. Sure, I know Fumi and I went to the the first two Regen conferences this year, and it certainly was a, a huge difference hanging out with people in person versus a you know digital format in any any in any time. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's uh, hard to. A lot of these conferences just stopped during the pandemic, so it's very much um, slowed down the rate of progress in many ways. Uh, these things really get considered when we're um, putting the brakes on society, but. Um, you know, the, the rate of progress is definitely about human interaction, and uh, that's, uh, that's certainly been uh, attenuated in the last few years, so we're looking forward to getting it going again. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, uh, I wanted to jump quickly back to your Psilocedia uh, project. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that and then, like, some of the different things that you've discovered? Because I've certainly never seen anyone take even half as much of the, the time to not even a fifth of the, uh, the time to, to study the, the genetics of that particular thing. And I think that you're really kind of leading the way in terms of the genetic un understanding of what's going on with those types of fungi. And then also the expression of all these different secondary compounds, which I think that the more we learn, it's going to end up being like cannabis where um, we, all these secondary compounds are having a much larger effect on the medicinal aspect of it than we initially realized. Yeah, so this was a bit of a lockdown project. Um, I, you know, many years ago, I actually sequenced one of these genomes when my father was sick with cancer, but I was a little afraid to put my name on it because I was making cannabis oil for him and I didn't want to, anyone knocking on my door because of um, putting this sequence public. But uh, so I tried to put that, I, I think I handed some of that to MAPS and I, and I put some of it public up on um, semi-public up on some blockchain system called Alexandria that, that kind of unfortunately disappeared. And an open bazaar. I think we had a link to it. So it's been, it's not really been Google um, crawled very well. So I don't think people find it very readily, but we finally packed that up and put it into NCBI and then decided it's time to like, uh, we should sequence many more of these, mainly because there was, there's all this literature coming out that fluvoxamine was working for COVID. Uh, and fluvoxamine's an SSRI, it, it, uh, but it's, it's unique in its SRI properties. It doesn't just hit the 5-HT like serotonin pathway. It seems to be playing a role in the sigma-1 receptor pathway as well, um, which is somewhat unique in its, in its properties um, for SSRIs. And that's, that's a receptor you may know from DMT. There's papers showing DMT hits sigma-1 uh, and obviously 5-HT2A. But... Um, I don't know. That got us intrigued. That hey, there's a there's a there's a mushroom out here that makes these things, uh, and if I had a bet, psilocybin would probably behave a lot like flu fluvoxamine with probably lower side effects. Um, you know, certainly third rail. But um, why not why not sequence these things to better understand uh, these these compounds? If if psilocybin works, maybe there's another compound in the plant that's a couple of methyl groups different that might uh, be less psychoactive and still get the same desired antiviral effects that they're seeing and. Uh, uh, and so there's been, there has been work done on this before us. And there was, um, I think, a group called Hoffmeister. Uh, there's another, uh, Jason Slot's done some work in this area. Um, I think uh, Byron uh, Dinginger's done some work in Utah. There, there's, there's other folks who have been sequencing these. Usually 
cyanosins or, or uh, cubensis, one or two genomes at a time with Illumina. But um, to really do these things right, we wanted to get a reference sequence done that was rock solid. And so we, um, we, we made some high molecular weight DNA and, uh, and called up Seth. We, we were going to send it to a university, but during COVID, like all of them were backlogged and couldn't really uh, give us any guaranteed turnaround time. So we asked Seth if he had any uh, extra space on his, on his uh, sequencer up there, and he did. So he threw this uh, high molecular weight DNA through there and got us a really great uh, sequence assembly of, um, of the penis envy genome. Um, and then once, once we had the raw data, like a bunch of other assembly people were like, oh, let's, let's all try this. So we, Jason Chin assembled it with Peregrine. I think, I think we ended up using that assembly, but we also had um, High Canoe assemble it, Sergi Corin's group. Um, uh, we used his code. I don't think he did it, but um, so we had a couple assemblies out of the gate that resulted in a paper we put through F1000 that had this uh, gorgeous reference genome. And phase genomics was very interested in helping out as well. So we, we got them some spores uh, and they were able to basically get us a high C map of this thing, which is, um, so I probably, I think I've described this in one or two of these other talks, but when we got the, the first sequence back from the PacBio HiFi system, it ended up in about 40 or so contigs, which is really good for a genome. Like two of the chromosomes were in perfect tip to tip uh, sequences, like you know, three or 4 million bases long. We had telomeres on both ends. It was like, you just don't, it, this is not the way genomics used to work. Like in my day on the human genome project, like you would, it would take years to get a fungi sequence. And this thing basically occurred in a weekend. Uh, and it's a better quality than anything we could have ever dreamed of back then. Um, but once we had that really good reference sequence, um, we wanted to get the chromosomes pinned down because 40 pieces isn't about right. It should be probably like 13, 12 or 13 chromosomes. So this chromatin capture thing that um, phase genomics has is it basically takes the cells and hits it with a cross-linking agent. So all the proteins that are on the DNA kind of get glued to one another and you can then sequence um, that material uh, after you've kind of chopped it up. And the only thing that holds the DNA together is the protein. And so you can basically link pieces of sequence that are on the same chromosome this way, because uh, the, 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 the proteins don't cross link to the different chromosomes, they cross link to themselves. So you then bucket those 40 pieces. We bucketed it down to 13 chromosomes now. And so we've got the chromosomes all called correctly and they're in NCBI now and annotated for anyone to use. Um, but uh, that's never, that's always the start, um, kind of a, you know, the, the first gun, if you will. Um, but after that, the right thing to do is then sequence 80 to 100 more of these fungi and see what the differences are between all the strains. Because if you can if you can track the differences, you can start to associate some of those differences that might be related to whether they're making baocysteine or whether they're making psilocybin. Um, so we did that. We sequenced about, uh, there's 84 public now. Um, there's, there's many more behind that that are coming through that are various stages of assembly. Um, some of them, the ones that are outside the Cubensis family, we haven't figured out how to get into Psilocydia yet because they, they probably need their own reference genome. They're so different than, than Cubensis. But, um, but yeah, if you go to Psilocydia, you can probably pull it up now. It should be live. Yeah, uh, I, I was having an issue, but if you can pull it up, maybe you can pull it up there. Uh, I know that it, there's some, uh, well, sometimes when you launch a new website, it takes a minute to Oh, yeah, it is. It is as of Tuesday, but yeah, I, I can pull it up here. Um, let's see, you want me to share screen here? Sure, that'd be great. Yeah, let me make sure yeah. I have it. There you go. Should be able to. Bingo. There we go. All right. There we go. So it's uh, 
So lacidia.net. Um, so it's a lot like Canopedia. It's just uh, a strain registration system that's blockchain integrated. And um, this this does a bit more than Canopedia now. It's it's doing some microbiome analysis. It's also doing some um, uh, some work to to do the assemblies. Each of these genomes are whole genome sequenced, and we assemble them uh, out of the gate, which is kind of the gold standard. Um, we we can't we don't do that on on cannabis per se unless people ask for it because it's more expensive. It's such a bit. These genomes are forty two megabases. Cannabis is like eight ninety, so it's you can get about twenty of these done for the same amount of sequencing that you might use um, on a cannabis strain. So there's not much point in in like enriching for the the, the ten megabases you might care about because the genome is only forty megs. So it's just sequence it all is kind of where we've been going uh, with this. But let me see if we can pull one of these up. I think we were looking at. Uh, uh, this one today is Luminous Lucy's. Um, uh, so there's there's probably four or five different, um, I think at least five different uh, spore providers that have contributed to this. Um, premium spores, uh, spore works, inoculate the, the world, um, and um, USA Mycology, and then I, I'm probably forgetting one of them, but uh, you'll, you'll see them up in the DNA source category up here with links to their site. And these photos are theirs. We've, we've just um, been... Uh, you know, taking the photos that they have on their site and replicating them here. Uh, but what comes out of this are all of the annotated variant files. Um, that's what a, a variant call format is. It has every SNP and every indel finds the genome and just a long text list, um, somewhat boring, but uh, critical for really fingerprinting the strain. The raw sequence information anyone can take and upload uh, and, you know, rehash this data if they have a different or more preferred way to do it. Um, the ITS sequences are something that the fungal community loves to use. If they're out foraging and they find a new strain, they'll usually ITS amplify it and then Sanger sequence it. And that's probably the cheapest way. It might be 10 or 20 bucks to get something done that way. And it, and it will tell you if you're Cubensis or not Cubensis. It doesn't have the re resolution to really give you the strain name per se. Um, almost all the Cubensis you'll find in here has the same ITS sequence. But when you get into Tampanensis and Cyanosins and Azuracins, you'll see it starts to diverge quite a bit. Um, and then these other files are um, binary after mapping files. This is after the reads are mapped to the genome. It gives you a, a, a binary format file that you can load into a genome browser, as known as a BAM file. Um, and a couple other versions of this that are um, uh, that are annotated, where we have the genes actually layered in with uh, where these variants are having. Um, and then much like Canopedia, we have the, the, the sequencing coverage across the pathway. Um, so this is PSID, PSIH, PSIK, PSIM. These are the genes that are involved in, in modifying the L-tryptophan into various um, uh, tryptamines. So this one here in particular puts the phosphate on. So this is important in dealing with uh, psilocin versus psilocybin. And PSIM methylates. So um, this will change how many methyl groups are out there on the, uh, uh, on the other end of the molecule. And that's often the difference between baocystin, originacin, and um, and the other the other compounds that are uh, that are made of the plant. Um, now down below uh, we have uh, a microbiome assessment um, and how many reads of this actually map to the genome. You want this number, you know, usually above seventy five percent, but um, this one's so eighty three percent of the reads in this genome map to Cubensis. Um, the other sixteen percent we then pour into a tool to look at what other what other microbes are there. Um, the reason we're doing this is the Cubensis growth is really dependent on, um, you don't want any bacteria around. It has to be pretty clean because the bacteria grow very, very quickly and the fungi grows very slowly. So if you get any bacterial contamination in there, it can take off. Um, but we also just don't know which one of these are beneficial, right? These 
these, these microbes you can't always view as being contaminated. Some of them might be necessary for rapid growth. So we're just trying to catalog that every time we, we shotgun something. Um, and it might be different in spores than mycelia. So a lot of this work is getting done with spores. So the microbiome may be very limited inside of a spore um, isolation. But then, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, uh, the assembly, now this is all getting sequenced with Illumina, uh, which is a shorter read platform. So the assemblies don't end up in perfect chromosomes, but um, you can most, once you have a good reference built with PacBio, you can shortcut to Illumina and get a lot of work done for a lot less money. Um, and these give you really, um, you know, nice assemblies uh, of each of these genomes. Um, and this is another um, plot known as a blob plot here that's kind of looking for how many organisms are actually in the sequencing. Um, you get these kind of blobs of reads of a particular GC flavor. That's a sign that, okay, there's another organism in here at low coverage. Um, that's, you know, this is around 10X coverage, this is around 100X coverage. Um, that's probably contaminating um, the system a little bit. And this is just helpful to kind of keep an eye on what other microbes are present. But the funnest part is actually this uh, system here. If you're real nerd about this stuff, you can go and peek at all these variants. Let's see if I actually have the memory to pull up IGV here. Uh, I, may not, I may not have that screen shared, but, um, but this is, um, you can go and look at every single sequencing read uh, to see if the variants are supportable there. Hold on, I see them lagging there a little bit. Can you guys still hear me? Absolutely, yeah, no, this is fascinating. This but, is great, okay. and I really appreciate it. All right, so um, this should load up. Okay, now how do I, let me see if I can, you are sharing. All right, so let me share, I, I get the right. Let's do a new share. Let's do that one. All right. All right. So this is what's known as IGV. It's an integrative genome browser. It's made out of the Broad out of MIT. And what you're looking at here is every single sequencing read, and it, it marks it gray when it agrees, and then it paints it a slightly different color when there's you know either SNPs or sequencing errors. You can see these little things over here are like sequencing errors, but this is here a clear SNP. There's a variant there represented in about half the bases. This is about 116x coverage. That's really deep. We've kind of crushed this genome. It really, you really only need to do this like 25 to 30x, but um, sometimes this is what happens. So you've got, we've got 47 reads that show it's an A and 65 that say it's a G. So that's an AG mutation right there. And it's in a gene. Um, I think we clicked on probably one of the PSI genes here, or one of the variants in the pathway. Um, so now if we bounce back to the other sheet there. Let me see. I'm going to have to do a new share, get you over there. Um, so anyone can do this as long as you have IGV downloaded uh, for the Broad. It's open source software. But each of these uh, variants you can go and peek at to see if, you know, how good is the support? Because sometimes there's mistakes, you know, that's, it's like we call a variant and it's not really there when you dig it up. Um, but th th this is really helpful for the public to kind of comb through because they can, we got an email, the data went live from somebody saying, hey, there's something weird in one of your variants. Uh, that the reads don't look like the support, but it's really important. Can you take a look at it? So um, I actually got that my to-do list to do tonight. Uh, and then there's a distance calculator here. You'll see it'll pull up everything else that's very close to this. So the luminous lucies are obviously coming up because we, we did a lot of these genomes in triplicate just to, uh, we got them from multiple different providers um, and just to see that the, the, the names agreed at other providers. And surprisingly, actually, in the Cubensis space, it's pretty good. Uh, we were expecting this to be a mess, but it, the, I guess we had a, a different taste of this in the cannabis industry. 
Um, but part of that is that these things are generally reproduced differently. They're reproduced asexually. Um, and uh, so they can reproduce uh, with meiotic events, but most people I think are, are sharing these spores that are probably fairly tightly related to um, the original fruit they came from. Um, whereas cannabis is often crossed and so the names get confused with each cross. Uh, but you can also see the next nearest thing is this one, a renal volcano, which uh, is one that came out of mushrooms.com. That was the other one I forgot. Um, uh, similar plots down here, and you can see, you know, it'll come back with the three luminous lucies as being its, its closest, and then one of the uh, the penis envy strains comes out. And what's really nice to see is that these samples from multiple different spore providers come back on top of each other, uh, which is a good sign. It shows that there's actually some pretty good fidelity in um, amongst the, the the spore providers. Um, so um, on top of giving you nearest neighbors, it gives you the most distant ones as well, in case you want to do some, um, some crossing. And crossing is something we're still trying to figure out. Um, obviously, mycologists know how to do this, but it's not like cannabis. Cannabis has an XY chromosome system. And we believe cubensis is tetrapolar and that it has like four, four mating types, if you will. It might have six. We're still trying to figure that out. Um, Jason Slot found a bunch of pheromone B receptors um, that uh, are interesting uh, and chromosome 10. And Stephen Glaufflin found two of the mating type genes, like chromosome one, and I think the combination of those things is, is beginning to give us some pictures as to which you know which ones can cross with uh, with one another. So you can do you know perhaps a more successful breeding that way. Um, and then uh, we do the usual blockchain um, stamp down here for for immutable records of uh, of the born undated these things, and that may help in uh, keeping things public or using pursuing IP depending on what people want to do with it. But um, our, our job here is just to document. So we always uh, we always hash things under blockchains. Um, this one's probably on Dash. That's usually our default. Um, and nine, nine days ago, we um, these actually, a lot of these are actually up in NCBI back in October. So the earliest born on date is actually back then, but we just started stamping these a, a week before we put the, um, the site live. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the new tool. I don't think the phyla tree is totally worked out yet. Oh, they did do some work on this. Okay, there, there's just something wrong with the color coding on the phyla tree right now. Um, it's not getting the the distances um, color coded correctly. It's just because it's, it's it's keyed into cannabis right now. So we just have to adjust that, and and the colors will come back again. Um, but uh, basically, th these here are non-cubensis, which is why they're they're sitting off in this area. So this is this is psilocybe uh, tampanensis. And I think this Georgia one, um, I've got to look up that, that one. I think that might be another uh, uh, Galandois or Mexicana sample like this one. Um, uh, and there should be an Azura sense in here. Maybe that's the Azura sense because there, uh, there was a um, Oregon Coast one, which was an Azura sense one. Uh, so those are, those are so different that the reads barely even map to the genomes. The mapping rates are down at like 10%. And it looks like there's no coverage over those, those genes, but they're in fact there if you assemble the genome and look for them with um, you know, protein searches, you can find them. Um, but uh, yeah, so right now that's, that's kind of the family tree of, um, of Cubensis. Um, whole lot of samples over here that, that have some close you know, relationships that we gotta you know, scrutinize. And um, I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll help in, uh, you know, what we really need to do is chemotype these things, which we cannot do, um, but we'd love to collaborate with people who can. Um, we don't have the expertise nor the jurisdiction to do that correctly. So um, the, the next uh, chapter in this is to actually go and 
get, get the as many tryptamines measured out of this as you can and see if we can correlate those genotypes with the actual outcomes like we've done in cannabis. Uh, it worked out quite well in cannabis. We, we can now gauge just from the sequencing alone, whether it's going to be a CBG producing plant, whether it's going to be cannabinoid null, whether it's going to be a CBD or THC or, or synthesized both. Now, we're never very good at nailing the exact quantity it's going to make, but we can certainly tell the direction the pathway is going to go based on the genetics. And I think the same thing is going to be true in these. We're already seeing some variants in the pathway that are on our radar um, that uh, might be playing a role in how productive it is making these things. That was uh, uh, one of my questions was that if you can tell the uh, triterpene expression from the genomes yet, or if that's still... Uh... So Philippe Henry's done a little bit of work on that, actually. Um, he just put out a little uh, preprint yesterday uh, for 420 for this. So I pointed to some of his work. He's gone through and, and, and really tortured what variants in the cannabis genome predict different terpene expressions. And I think he had some mention. Of, he definitely had mono and sesquiterps in there. I think there was some mention of, of uh, triterpenes and um, also the, the, the flavonoids, I think, he was trying to poke at as well. Um, so it's getting better. Um, that, that's something that's a lot easier done in cannabis right now because there's so many labs that can measure those things um, that can also do handle the DNA. I think the challenge we're having in the, the Cubensis space is so new. You know, a few people are really good at the sequencing and a few people, only a few people in the world have licenses to even measure the compounds in the plant. But um, you know that's changing. It's looking like Oregon's going to open up on this and couple jurisdictions uh, here in Mass opened up, Cambridge, Somerville, Northampton, all decriminalized at least. Um, I think Berkeley and, and Oakland did as well, Denver. Uh, but Canada, I think, is probably the ground where a lot of that's going to happen. So we're speaking to some folks up there to see if we can get um, some chemotype material um, DNA extracted for us and we'll sequence it. And if they can get the RNA to be even better, we'd sequence that as well. Um, and, and that'll help decorate these pathways a little bit more. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. For sure, uh, it's definitely a, an interesting uh, project that you're working on. Uh, the one other question I had for you, particularly in regards to this set of data, was: um, Have you sequenced uh, PES Amazonian from uh, SporeWorks? Was that one? I one? think we have. That name does ring a bell. And um, well, there's Oregon Coast. Let me see where. Like this guy was definitely a, a good yielder for me back in the day, and a, a oh. good reliable cultivar. Right there. Nice. Nice. Yep, that's it. Very cool. I'll, look, yep. I'll have to dig into that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that one's uh, that one's there. Um, the the thing that was hardest about this project um, is that they all have very different spores, and that are um, they range from whether uh, probably about eighty percent of the samples cruise through with our, our prep. 20% of them, we had to fight like hell to try and get DNA out of the spores, and, and, and we don't know why. Uh, and we fi we've since figured out how to hammer the spores and, and break them open more, but um, that was not, um, that, that's what led to a lot of the replicates that you're seeing in here is that we kept you know, trying them over and over again <laughs> and uh, trying to get more and more DNA out of them. So um, the, the, the best way to do this now is to send a spore print or a spore syringe and we can get DNA out of those and sequence the entire genome. Now, there are some subtle drawbacks to sequencing spores is that um, you don't get a haploid representation of the genome. Uh, you, you, so the, the mating type loci have variants in the, in the genome when you look at them. Uh, when you, if you were to sequence this from like a clonal 
colony, you might see a slightly different picture in the mating type regions because it would be one mating one mating type, whereas the spores are a collection of all of them. Uh, so, um, you know, th th that's the only thing we've noticed so far between the difference between the two. But uh, the rest of the genome seems like it's readily callable uh, without any problems. Very cool. Uh, oh man, I lost my my train of thought on the on that follow up question there. Uh, um, yeah, you have some more variants in this one. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites. Uh, it, you can stabilize it out to about a gram per, and uh, yeah, it's a good producer for me at least, and strong. Looks like it's closely related to Golden Teacher, huh? Huh, I didn't know that. And Golden Teacher is related to PE, isn't it? Or no? Oh, I would I would imagine the PE isn't the the PES one related. I thought that would be related to penis number. Yeah. Yeah, I thought they were they were close. Let me see what Apparently we got here. <laughs> These are all coming in really tight. We probably have to expand that a little bit and see if we can pick up any of the others. Have you uh, learned much more about the MAOIs and the genomic expression on that? Is it universal or is it hyper specific between you know cultivar types or? We, you know, we haven't done any of that work. I've just most mostly just been bookworming that out of the literature, and there is some work suggesting it's mostly expressed in the in the mycelium. So um, that's uh, I'm kind of wondering what will happen in, in the mushrooms that have sclerotia, because that's kind of a some kind of state that looks to be like a mixture of mycelium and and fruit, you know, uh, and maybe those have higher um, beta carbolines. Uh, in them, but no, we, so we don't have the um, capacity. No, no, those compounds I, I bet would be different. That's a good question is whether the DEA would have any issues. One, it's not our expertise to monitor those things. And so we wouldn't be doing a very good job at it. But two, I'm always questioning like whether it's legal in Massachusetts and then um, the carbolines might be, um, I'd have to look into that. Um, but we don't have, uh, we don't have a license to, to express any compound. Now, I have heard from um, some of the sport providers, I think it was Drew at Inoculate the World mentioned he had some of his um, cultures tested to see if there was anything, any psilocybin detected in the culture state and he doesn't have any detected in his. So um, that kind of, I think it's kind of been wondering what, the, what does this mean based on what the DA recently did with type one cannabis seeds because the premise there wasn't about viability, it was about compound percentages. And so if it's undetectable below some limit, um, then the cultures might be able to go in the mail too. Um, and that means we could probably do RNA uh, expression analysis off of cultures, which would be very interesting um, because I'm sure there's, I don't think we're gonna get much RNA out of the spores uh, and there's not much gene activity going on in there. But once you start um, growing these things, the, all, the, all the different genes should turn on in, in, the, uh, in the spawning process, which might be uh, important to document. Well, I definitely uh, am excited to learn more about this and see how it grows in the future as you get more and more samples. And uh, there's certainly no one else doing this in a public fashion like you are. And I uh, really appreciate all the hard work you're doing down this space because uh, it's going to be uh, uh, really critical to preventing some of the different uh, patent wars later on and other crazy bullshit that, that goes on. Yeah, I mean, th there is a vibrant community that is doing fungal sequencing. Um, of ITS, where they, where they amplify the ITS region. You can do that in the field with these, these things here. This here is like a, um, probably, you probably can't see this because I'm sharing a screen, right? Maybe I'll unshare. Yep. <laughs> there we go. There you go. Now we can see um, 
But yeah, these little devices people can take. Uh, you can't see it now. Let me hold it right there by my face. <laughs> Uh, these are field portable PCR units. And so people are using these to amplify the ITS region. And then you can send that in for Sanger sequencing and, and get at least uh, an, an understanding of whether it's cubensis or non-cubensis or, or, you know, psilocybe, uh, you know, tamponensis or something. Um, so there is a, there's actually a great community doing that. And a lot of that stuff's going public and we're trying to integrate that into, into psilocydia. Um, and then a couple other academics out there are putting some are putting some um, some genomes public as well. So I think a, a paper just came out with about ninety some odd um, ITS sequences um, that aren't just psilocybe. They're they're like you know a whole portfolio of mushrooms that were in a uh, in a museum that they weren't certain how many of them were hallucinogenic and how many weren't. So they wouldn't they wouldn't catalog them all. And uh, so the data is starting to build. They're starting to be a nice public um, repository. And uh, well, this is certainly one of the larger um, uh, deposits ever put public, it's, it is fairly focused on cubensis. Uh, it doesn't have a whole lot of activity uh, outside of that. I mean, we, we have some of those GM sequence, we just haven't figured out how to integrate them to this viewer because they're so diverged from cubensis that they, uh, the data just kind of looks kind of meaningless at the moment. Um, so we have to, we have to build some other reference genomes and, and, uh, and have fork this so that psilocydia can then also handle cyanosins and all the other ones that people are interested in. I think right now some of the laws, however, are constricting the use of those. I think Oregon is only legalizing cubensis. Oklahoma is actually uh, damn close. I think just the governor has to sign off on it. Uh, oh, really? Legalized research. Yeah, they have two two can uh, psilocybin mushroom bills, and they have two more go that are going about to be introduced that haven't been introduced yet. What do you but need to get a, a research license online. down there? Yeah, they're aiming to commercialize it and be in line with o o Oregon having uh, testing, ultimately having this testing, cultivation, and dispensaries, but we'll see if it goes through or not. Oh, that'd be huge. That'd be very helpful. Yeah, keep me apprised of that because we'll, um, there's anyone down there that needs, um, you know, wants to learn more about this, if the, if the regulators are concerned. I mean, some, some of the regulators throw up concerns saying, oh, we don't have a way to identify this from toxic mushrooms. And, and that's, and we do now. Like we've got enough sequencing on this that we can differentiate cubensis from all of the other concerns that are out there. Um, that they probably don't know that, uh, and they'll probably bring up that um, that footfall being like, "No, nah, it's too dangerous. You're going to mix up these mushrooms." Um, I think that's addressed. Um, the capacity to measure any microbe they care about in this, I think we have addressed as well, because we have protocols that can do PCR out of these, uh, out of spores. And uh, we have tested those on uh, DNA extracts from, from fruits. Uh, so it, 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 uh, if, they, if they're concerned about any other microbial contaminant, they, they usually are concerned about an any edible E. coli and salmonella. Um, we've not seen the evidence of those microbes in this yet, but that's usually what they kind of uh, carte blanche put on any edible even in the cannabis industry. So um, those shouldn't be too, too difficult to, to capture out of this. Um, and if there's any other microbe that tends, to, I haven't seen a lot in the literature of, of the, all the toxicology I've seen in the literature on this is usually from uh, mistaking Gallerina marginata, or um, I don't even know how people mistake uh, the amanitas for this because they're usually red, but um, there have been some amanita poisonings probably because people were confusing them with a different amanita that they're looking for. Um, but uh, those, there's reports of like liver failure and kidney. It's, it's not, it's not a good way to go. I mean, if you get, a, 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 it leads to like liver transplants, if you ever make this mistake. So um, it's, uh, it's something you don't want to get wrong, but um, I don't know that there's a high number of them in the literature. It seems to be a really rare event.
Yeah, it's it's uh, certainly uh, really exciting to learn about all these new things and down that space for sure. Uh, definitely looking forward to that. Um, uh, what else is new in the world of um, uh, genetics testing and things like that uh, in terms of cannabis? I know you've been doing a ton of work down that space as well. And uh, uh, you got every time I'm on your website, you have a, a new uh, a new test on your let me pull it up. Here. Yeah. So we have actually 14 tests for viruses now, but we've only released probably five of them because we're waiting for molecular confirmation that these things actually exist in the plant. Um, so what do I mean by that? Well, hop latent viroid, people have sequenced that genome out of the plant. They've proven it actually exists in cannabis. Um, so that one gets used quite a bit. That's probably the most um, uh, popular of the virus tests that are out there. Uh, lettuce chlorosis virus, we see more in Israel and in, um, in the East Coast. Um, that one gets used a bit out here. Beet curly top is showing up quite a bit in Colorado. Um, it sounds like you've had it as well down in Oklahoma. Um, yep. Uh, and then tobacco streak was just found in Colorado. Um, and uh, that one, we had a test ready to go, but after seeing that paper, we're modifying it to make sure it can capture what they found in Colorado because it was quite diverged. Uh, and we just put out a tobacco mosaic one, but I'll say the, the tobacco mosaic one, um, that is one where we got begged to put it public, even though we have not found it in cannabis yet. <laughs> Uh, so I've heard rumors of someone finding this in cannabis. And, uh, and so we're just cross-checking our assay to make sure it actually hits what they found. People always anecdotally say a friend of a friend of a friend has tobacco mosaic virus, uh, yeah. but no one could ever display it, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think a legitimate pathologist uh, has now found it, sequenced it, and it's different enough. And um, I'm hoping they, they call it something else. <laughs> Cannabis mosaic virus. It probably has, has probably earned itself its own name, but uh, we'll see. Um, but that um, I haven't, I have, we haven't run into that quite a bit and maybe it's because um, there's just not a lot of testing going on for it. But um, uh, that one seems to be uh, what everyone blames it on that, even though I've seen HLV plants produce a mosaic pattern on leaves too. It doesn't happen all the time, but um, some of the ones we, we worked on with Colin out here were like, we, we first screened his plants against all 14 because we figured out oh, this looks like a mosaic virus. We got to hit all these, all these other mosaics that we have. And, um, and it, they were all negative. It was, it was surprising to us to find it was hop latent virus that was doing it. But uh, yeah, that's, that's been an interesting project because we went through and tested his, these were heirloom plants that he did not want to throw away. I mean, he's had them for 20 years or more. Um, and so uh, some of the really old genetics that go back to an original Sour D, some of the original chem dogs, some of the original, um, a lot of early lines. Uh, so, you know, just one test and throwing them out was not an option. We were, we tested the samples like in triplicate, like three times a week for a couple of weeks to make sure that they were all in fact, consistently showing viroid levels uh, and all the internal controls are working correctly. Uh, and then um, anything that was a really like late CT, we were sure to repeat multiple times just to make sure we're not, um, we're not missing this. But we also went through his plants and looked at them in multiple tissues, flowers, stems, petioles, roots. It's everywhere. It's in the roots. Um, and uh, that has me thinking this may transfer plant to plant through the mycelium because there is some documentation of viroids doing that. So uh, in, it, it's transmission is all, all believed to be mechanical, um, but uh, we don't yet, we've not yet caught insects in the act of moving it. I suspect that happens. Uh, and uh, we've not really interrogated the mycelium very much, but it, the, the, there may be some, you know, if you have plants on two different edges of a root bed, 
um, that's, that's possible that, that, that uh, it could transfer that way. The, the most interesting observation I made with mosaic expression cannabis was I was at a grow. I'm going to leave the grow nameless, but I'm sure they would prefer I did so. But uh, <laughs> I was at a grow and they were running a test between four different lights and they had the same size grow room with the same cuts in each room running a side by side. And in one of the rooms, the difference in light spectrum caused one of the strains to hyper express the mosaic virus. And the only difference was the lighting. And I know that for a fact wow. because they were running this test to see which light they were going to use on their larger facility there under construction. So I thought that was a really strange cool. observation to see that the light was having an immense expression on uh, effect on the expression of the viroid, uh, specifically whichever type of mosaic this was. Um, I, Kevin, I can talk to you about this offline and, and maybe even get you some tissue samples off those moms. But um, uh, because I think they still have moms down there from those, those moms, but it was only under one of the lights that it expressed it, but it was the same cut under all four, but only one of them showed it. Was it more, do you know if it was more red or blue light that was doing it? Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the photos. I have photos of it though. Oh, wow. That's really cool. No, we love, yeah, I'd love to catch up with you on that. Cause that's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a, a um, it's annoying in that these are latent viruses, right? So I think Colin, he had about a dozen plants, eight of them were positive, two of them showed symptoms. Right. So that was a bit surprising. And now after he knew they were positive, he went back hunting for very specific phenotypes. Like, you know, are there any brittle stems or what have you? And he started to say, okay, yeah, these guys aren't moving along as quickly as I hoped they, they would be. And their stems seem brittle. So I could see how they're, they're kind of asymptomatic or partially symptomatic, if you will. Um, but that's, um, yeah, there's a lot we learned in the last two years about dealing with PCR with asymptomatic viruses. Um, you got to be really careful. I mean, it's one thing to have clones and just, you know, they're disposable, right? So maybe any PCR signal you see, chuck them. But when you, get, when you start dealing with some of these heirloom genetics, I would not want to be throwing out mothers if you had a single PCR test that was out in the late 30s, because it could be a false positive or it could be a plant that's resistant. Um, like people who are resistant to COVID are still PCR positive, right? Uh, your immune system keeps it at, at bay so you don't have high viral load, but uh, it's not zero. Uh, so I don't want us to get in this habit of just clear cutting all of these heirloom genetics off of late CT, single tests, when if it's, if, if it's, it's a really important mother plan, I think you might want to keep it and study it because those, those viroid loads, they're like a million fold lower, right? That's significant. Uh, that's something to keep an eye on. Like most of these viroid loads, when they come out, they're screaming hot in every tissue. It's not like uh, it's black and white. Like they're really hot at CTs of 20. So when we start seeing stuff that's really late, uh, we think false positives, contamination, or maybe it's biologically very interesting and you should keep it. Uh, it might be one that you want to breed with because it happens to keep the viroid load very low and maybe it does, it's never affected by it. Maybe, yeah, yes, it might, maybe it's a contamination risk and you got to be careful, but at the same time, if it's a million fold lower the contamination risk is probably a million fold lower as well. Uh, and, um, it's, uh, it, it might be an interesting one to, to keep breed or maybe tissue culture your way out of it. There have been some people reporting that, um, you know, cold tissue culture seems to, slow down the replication of this thing while the, the, the plant can then clear it.
Do, does it work the same way that it does in some other organisms as far as reference genomes, where maybe the plants are storing that genome as a reference material for antibodies or anything like that, or does it not work that way in plants? So this is a most fascinating um, molecule. I've got to say, it, it will blow your mind trying to think of the chicken and the egg that came up with this thing. Right, like if, if you want to be an advocate for intelligent design, this would be some something to study, <laughs> right? Because all right, so this is a molecule. It's it has no, it has no viral code on it, right? It's just a 256 base pair RNA molecule that's circular, uh, and it happens to be a ribozyme. All right, so for those who aren't familiar with ribozymes, they believe the earliest forms of life were ribozymes that they were RNA molecules that could fold in such a way like an enzyme that they're catalytic that they actually perform reactions with other metal cofactors, uh, maybe magnesium or, or what have you, uh, and they can actually cut other pieces of RNA. So this particular ribozyme, if you look at it, it has a couple bubbles in it. It's not a perfect stretch of, of double-stranded RNA. It's circular with a lot of bubbles, and those bubbles, we believe, are there to evade a lot of the RNases that typically clear these things. Uh, there's a lot of endogenous RNases in, in plants that go and chop up double-stranded RNA because it looks like an invader. Um, it's also involved in a lot of the um, uh, the uh, argonaut dicer pathways involved in this, right? Um, so this um, this thing has figured out a way to get into a plant cell. It doesn't code for any genes. It's just a ribozyme that can cut RNA, and it's targeting itself. So this circular RNA when it starts to copy, it's called rolling circle amplification. If you can imagine one primer gets on that thing and it's just a gerbil wheel that goes on forever. And so you get this long, long RNA molecule that's made off of the original circle. And then the ribozyme, the double-stranded versions that are still floating around, go and cut that into 256 base pair pieces of a little RNA. And the plant genome or cell somehow circularizes that with a ligase and puts it back into a circle and the process repeats itself. So somehow this molecule has figured out how to hijack the replication in the plant, cut itself and make more of itself without there being any gene involved. It, it's, um, it, it's totally fascinating. Uh, they do seem to be a little bit RNA resist, RNA resistant as well due to the feature of these bubbles. We've, you know, we've tried all different types of RNases on these things to clear them and um, they do have differential activity on it. Um, there are some RNAs genes in the cannabis genome as well that we're looking at. There's one known as RNAs3 that may be playing a role. Um, like why did Colin have four plants that didn't get it? Or we, so we sequenced all those genomes and probably years before we figure it all out. But um, that, uh, we're, we're hoping there'll be some signatures in some of these plants that are less susceptible to it and keep lower viroid loads. Um, you know, we may not be able to get rid of it 100%, like this concept of zero COVID didn't really work. I don't know that zero HLV will work either. We may have to find plants that just keep the load so low that it's not symptomatic and doesn't affect yield. Um, uh, I mean, certainly there's people disagree on that topic. You know, the nurseries just want to go zero because they have to, they're, they're in the business of cutting and moving these things around. But um, I, 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 what I'm most worried about is clear cutting so much of the ancient genetics that are around uh, if we deploy hyper-aggressive PCR everywhere. Um, particularly if this is, um, th there's a lot of artifacts that can happen just with statistics alone. If you do, if you turn this test into like, let's say a non-quantitative test where you don't get this information about CT values and you pick some places positive and negative on that scale, um, you, you run into a lot of problems when it's at low population frequency because all tests have a false positive rate. And even if it's 1%, that's close 
if that's close to the disease prevalence, you're going to find false positives as frequently as you find positives. Um, and so um, there's a lot of Bayesian statistics. You gotta, you gotta be very, uh, I have actually, I have a, I'll point people to a Substack on this that I wrote um, or a blog that we wrote about this. But um, when you get involved in presence absence testing, you gotta be very careful with Bayesian statistics to make sure that you're, you don't end up having your false positives just you know, eat up your entire um, statistical significance. Uh, but that that was happening in COVID testing for quite a bit um, with people who didn't the earlier tests didn't have the right controls and there's a lot of this crap that went on. But um, uh, what I don't want to see happen is we this thing rages through California and we just slash and burn all the genetics out there, uh, not paying close attention to the there could be some out there that that consistently have lower viroid loads and we want to capture those uh, and and see if we can breed with them. Um, the other thing I think that needs to be better studied is what percent of the seeds carry this? Because a lot of the, um, if you look to the genetics of the seeds, a lot of these RNAs get hyper-expressed in the seeds. Uh, and they believe that is meant to purify the seed from not having any viruses in the next generation. Um, and so I've heard rumors, although I've not seen a study on this, I've heard rumors from various people in the field that there might be a 5% contamination rate in, in the seeds, but like 95% of them are usually clean of it. So. Um, you know, selfing these things and making seeds is another way to potentially purify them outside of tissue culture. How prevalent is it in quote unquote land race uh, cultivars? Do we know yet? I don't know yet. No, I mean, that's probably a better question for some of the nurseries that have been handled a lot more um, diverse lines than we have. We're, we're a bit one step removed from this because we, we sell the kits to a lot of the labs to then work directly with a lot of the growers. So we, we only get um, kind of aggregate information as to what the positivity might be in various areas, but we don't, we don't have any understanding of who has it where and, and, um, and what, what plants are getting it. I was just gonna say, I, my follow-up question was, is there any uh, populations that you've seen that explicitly uh, less dominant or less prevalent in? Um, not that's not that would call statistically significant yet. Uh, I mean, there's the study we did with Colin and, and that was just 12 samples and four of them didn't get it. And I, I don't know if that's just, he had them isolated enough from the other ones, or if there was something about those that, that significantly um, uh, thwarted it off. I mean, the right thing to do would be to probably clone those things and then put them into the same territory and, and, and maybe even mechanically introduce um, the viroid to those to see if they, uh, if they harbor to the same degree. So um, another question I wanted to bring up just because I've had a, a couple people bring it up a lot recently about herming. Um, can you talk to us about the genetics around hermaphrodites and hermaphroditic traits in cannabis and, and kind of what causes that? I've, I've heard that uh, too much back crossing can cause it and a whole bunch of other kooky ideas as to what's going on. And I know that you're kind of an authority on this type of stuff. So I figured you'd be a great person. To I, you know, I, I wish I had a better answer other than we, we hope to find out because uh, what, so what we built into Canopedia is a Y, um, a y chromosome coverage map. Uh, so if you go in there, you'll see uh, when we whole genome sequence something, we just count the number of reads that fall on the Y chromosome and how many to call them the X chromosome. Right now, we use the, the Jamaican lion reference is the only one out there right now that has a, a Y chromosome. So, and it's a big chromosome. It's like a hundred megs. So um, that is, uh, uh, that, so that, that counts the density of the reads. Um, there may be some variants um, that, uh, that exist on the Y or on the X. We also have the X identified. Um, so we can look at, you know, if there's different variants on the X and Y right now, that's about as far as we've gone. Um, and, 
we we haven't sequenced this RNA yet. It's killing me that I haven't done it yet, but we did collect RNA on plants going through the transition to see if we could see what genes were, were lighting up in the process of hermaphroditization. And we did it both directions. We did it with ethafon going one direction and we did it with, um, uh, with uh, uh, silver thiosulfate going the other direction, but we just haven't gotten that stuff on the pack bios yet. It's been sitting in a freezer for way too long, um, but that that might that might decorate what parts of the gene uh, and the genomes are are responsible for this, and it probably needs to be done as you mentioned across a lot of different cultivars. Because I have also heard the same thing that some of the lines are are train wrecks. You know, they just they just hurt me really really readily, uh, and that's probably genetic from what we know in hemp. Hemp. John McKay's done some good work on this, um, where they were collecting hemp samples that had different monacity rates. Like, you know, they, they would be, uh, you know, almost permahermes, if you will. Um, and they'd have male and female flowers, but they'd have them at different ratios. They consistently have them like at 90-10 or 50-50. And I know they've been doing some work digging into that. I just don't know what's come of it. Um, but that, that might, in fact, inform on uh, if there are any genetic components that, um, that predict that. I wanted to mention too. So the only time I've ever got my hands on some Jamaican lion was at the Regen conference out in Humboldt. Uh, a guy was giving out clones. We brought one oh, back. Cool. To, uh, Is this Jeremy brought, by chance? What was that? Was his name Jeremy by chance? I, I'll be honest with you. I don't remember. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was at the the first Humboldt Regen conference when it was at the elementary school up there, and. Um, uh the weird trait that i found with that because we caught a couple of clones off of it and, and and flushed it out a great plant in terms of yielder but if we kept it under 24 hours she would throw a, a small amount of male flowers if we put her under 18 hours she wouldn't throw any anymore and she'd act like a normal plant but the only time I've, we could get her to throw any herm traits was under 24 hours so there was some type i've of ever trigger. put it under yeah, that's a, that's an important point. I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever done that to it before. Now, and I, yeah. the genetics I got were seeds out of um, uh, where was I? I was in Hopland. There's a dispensary up in um, Hopland that uh, uh, Martin Lee brought me up to. I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, but they were they were up in there. They had seeds up there, and that's where I picked them up. And and eventually got in touch with uh, I think it's Ganja Genetics. Um, and, uh, and they, they shared some history of that. It's, it's, it's apparently been around for a decade or more. It was, I think it won a cannabis cup, a San Francisco cannabis cup back in like 2013, maybe, or it's a while yep. ago, but yep. yeah, we had good luck with that and that we, we had a hard time getting that thing to take any powdery mildew. I had a powdery mildew loaded plant, um, just like snuggling with that thing for months and it wouldn't pick it up. Um, I don't know how well that's, uh, we're a couple descendants, I think from the, what actually won the cup in 2013. I think we may be three or four generations down from that. Uh, random observation, and maybe this will also cue into some of the genomes that pick up on silica, but we did a ton of different side-by-sides with PM and tomatoes and PM with a couple of uh, uh, cucumbers and a couple of other uh, vegetable crops at aquaponics source. Cause that's what, you know, we could legally do in the space. Uh, we had a separate offsite cannabis spot, but um, silica levels played a huge role in, in the PM resistance and the, in the genome expression. Or, you know, oh, I, I know that there's research on corn and wheat on the genome expression with uh, minimum uh, silica levels. So if, if it's below a certain threshold, they don't activate that gene that increases that mold ah. resistance. We've seen that directly, and I could give you exact parts per million thresholds in aquaponics. 
Now, were you seeing it jump from tomatoes to cannabis? Because there are, there have been one or two more powdery mildews found on cannabis. I think someone's yep. now confirmed so that. I can speak on that firsthand. I can tell you that the shit that I dealt with in California was way different than the stuff I dealt with in Africa and Zimbabwe, uh, in Zimbabwe and different than the stuff I dealt with in Jamaica and different than the strain I deal with in Oklahoma. Yeah. The one in Oklahoma responds much better to Bactillus pomilus, whereas the other ones respond really well to Bactillus subtilis. But the, the Oklahoma one, I can spray it with cease and it'll knock it back, but doesn't get rid of it. Um, but if I spray it with something like Sonata, which is a Bactillus pomilus, or um, what's the general hydro has one called uh, HydroGuard, or uh, someone in chat might know. Um, uh, general Hydroponics has an equivalent that's a, a Bactillus pomilus uh, concentrate. Um, that uh, uh, Both of those work really well in, in Oklahoma, whereas the, the Bactillus subtilis doesn't really do it all that well. So it, there's definitely a difference in species for sure. So there has... Um... So I, I know of, I think about three different genomes so far that have been documented. One is uh, Golovinomyces, um, I think it's Ambrosia. One is Golovinomyces chicoracerum. Um, there's a third Golovinomyces I think I saw recently reported. And then I think there's even Podosfera, I think um, from hops, they think has jumped as well. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's like, you know, a dozen of these ones. And um, we've, we've had a test out there that only really tar only targets one because it's all we knew about back when we, we sequenced a, a powdery mildew genome many years ago to try and it was a disaster because it was very hard to sequence. It's very repetitive. So we didn't really get the whole genome in perfect shape, but we got enough to get a PCR marker off of it. Um, but we're probably missing some with that in um, if there's, if there's different flavors of it now being discovered. Um, fortunately, the, the Golovinomyces tend to all amplify, I shouldn't say all of them, but the ones so far that have been discovered, I think are, are, are working fine with the primers, but we, we have a different set now for uh, Potosfera. It's just, we don't know which jurisdictions need these and whether the, all the tests have to have all the different powdery mildews on them. And um, it's not something people have been really eager to qPCR test for, mainly because they they usually can detect it by eye without any, um, you know, and there's usually an easy way to deal with it, like you mentioned, or some people are using hydrogen peroxide sprays and other things to just knock it back. Uh, and there are ways to breed your way out of this. Um, so. Um, the piece, the, these things don't grow on any of the total yeast and mold plates. So it's not a yeast and mold that's going to make your sample fail in any cannabis testing lab. And so as a result, a lot, a lot of folks just don't, don't care to necessarily track it. But um, uh, for research purposes, a lot of people are, you know, they're, they're buying them and using it just to, just to figure out what they have. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming years, people find um, more of these. I think we now, what we learned from, from sequencing, um, these psilocybe spores, we want to go back and apply to the powdery mildew because one of the problems we had was lysing open those things. Cracking them open to get enough DNA to do a genome out of wasn't easy. We'd always end up getting all the other microbes but it because it, when, it, when it's there, you tend to see like the penicilliums burst up, a bunch of other things break out. Plants immune systems like wrecked. And so all these other things are there as well. And they, they, they lyse open more readily and you tend to sequence the everything but powdery mildew when you go after it. So um, they do need a real, um, uh, we, we've been using these enzymes, actually an enzyme we cloned out of cannabis to, um, uh, to, to fight this, the, to put in our, our kits. So our, our yeast and mold kits now have uh, a thaumatine-like protein in them that you do an enzymatic digestion to help crack open some of these molds. Some of these molds build these really thick cell walls that are loaded with, with, with uh, glucan and, and, and chitin. And so to cut that open, we throw enzymes at it so we can ensure we're getting all the DNA in a given test. But 
um, that was also critical in cracking open the cubensis spores. Uh, we've been throwing that in there to basically digest the things overnight, and uh, we end up getting much more DNA out of the out of the press when we do that. So, oddly enough, some of the the powdery mildew resistance genetics has kind of pointed us into a direction on how to better better analyze fungal genomes, which is um, kind of an unexpected twist. That's really cool. I uh, never would have thought of it in that uh, <clears throat> in that way. Uh, that, that's really neat. Um, what other questions do we have here from chat here? Uh, one second here. Oh, can we sequence humans? I think I see in the chat. Yeah. So I used to run a CLIA lab that would sequence humans and it's so damn regulated uh, that we don't do it anymore. Sorry. <laughs> it's a, you have to have a CLIA lab to do it. And the FDA likes to get involved when you start making clinical calls on um, human genetic data. HIPAA law comes into play as it should come into play, but um, there's a, uh, that's a that's a very very tightly regulated space now to, to sequence humans medically. You got to have a physician sign off on every test. Um, there's probably some research use only places you can do it, like 23andMe, but th there's a limited number of things that they can tell you based on uh, the overhang of the FDA. Um, so is there any other uh, pest-related genes that, uh, that you've also discovered or any other work that you've done aside from PM uh, down that space? Uh, no, and, and on, on that front, we've mainly been um, focusing on a lot of the viruses and um, less of the, uh, you know, we, we have the, the mold resistance genes on a chip now. So yeah, I guess, that, I guess that there have, this has been, it's been a while since we spoke to you, probably haven't spoken to you about this, but all right, so two, two things in that area are, there is a SNP chip now that has 85,000 markers on it um, that Eurofins manages um, in Europe and we manage in the United States. Um, and this has a lot of the genetics uh, for, um, for we, we basically tiled the chitinases, the TLPs, and then uh, a lot of the genes that had uh, MLO in there. MLO is a mildew susceptibility low side um, that you'll find. Uh, David Jolly actually did a really good paper on that stuff. Um, and so we've tiled a lot of those regions on that chip. Um, there's, I think there's like 80 markers across. There was a PM1 marker that came out, I think from Dewey Scientific, I think published that. Um, and uh, we already had that region on the chip that was on our radar. Um, just having the, the annotated references, we knew that one was probably gonna be involved, uh, but that one's hyper tiled as well. Uh, so there's other tools out there. Um, the, the second tool that we put public um, was when we do cannabis sequencing, if people don't want to sequence the whole genome, we have this um, sure select system that, that enriches the coding regions of the genome, about, about 10 to 18 megabases of coding region that we pull out of the genome. The entire coding content of the cannabis genome is probably like 42, 43 megabases. Um, so we haven't, we're not capturing everything because when you start capturing everything, it makes more sense to just sequence the whole genome. So we have something that captures about a quarter of the coding content. It hits a lot of the cannabinoid genes, the terpene genes, the genes in the, in the pathogen response. Um, that used to be a panel that we use internally. And um, we decided to put that public so anybody can order that from Agilent, send it to the local university and get stuff sequenced without us if they want to. Um, and that's just part of um, uh, keeping it neutral, if you will, like, you know, uh, open source like that means people can check our work and it builds a little bit more trust. Uh, other people can sequence the same panel that we're sequencing. If they need us to analyze the data, we can pump that into Canopedia, kind of turn it into a SAS model, if you will. But the um, 
that community design you can now order. Um, and I think that's been helpful for the, the whole Humboldt legacy project out there because they now can point to a, hey, you don't have to necessarily send it to missile genomics if, you, if you're concerned about their, their private affairs or their, their business motives. You can buy the kit, send it to a university, get them to sequence it and send you the data. And if you need help with the data, you know, there's universities can either help you or we can help you. But uh, it's just meant to keep um, some more of these tools out in the public space so that more of these questions get answered. I think the biggest problem we have in cannabis genomics is that there's so much damn data that uh, you're, it's somewhat fool, foolish to hoard it. <laughs> Uh, putting in public means other people see stuff you don't find. And that's what's happening is we're seeing people now publish multiple different markers um, that are pointing to new, uh, you know, new genes that are involved in these things. So, um, so if anything's new, it's not necessarily new gene discovery. It's more of more tools have been thrown out there for other people to, to poke at the problem. How is the, the mapping of terpene expression in cannabis going? I know we touched on that a little bit earlier with uh, um uh, the mushrooms with the triterpenes. Uh, what do we know so far on the cannabis side? Oh, I thought you were asking about that in the cannabis side. I'm sorry. <laughs> I answered oh, that sorry. wrong. But <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, the most recent thing I saw was uh, from uh, Sean Miles group, I think put some work out. And then uh, Philippe Henry put some work out where they're tracking various SNPs that are predicting the classes of terpene expression. Um, and uh, they have some, some interesting papers. So I, I, I would, uh, Keith Allen's done some work on this as well. I haven't seen his most recent work, but um, there's uh, those are probably three of the names to go after to, to dig more into that. We're, we're combing through those papers to see if we need to port any of those tools into Canopedia, if they're predictive enough for us to start calling things um, off of the markers that they've seen. Uh, we, we've done our own some of our own PCAs on there. Um, we're, we don't have the same diverse chemotypes in Canopedia. So they, they've really gone out and, and looked for ones that have unique flavonoids and have unique um, uh, some other extreme terpene profiles that we, we don't, that we were missing. I think a lot of our genetics are really heavy in, in um, beta carophylline, terpenaline and, uh, and limonene and pinene, but we were missing some of the, 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 the ones that are a little bit more sesquiterpene dominated. Someone else in chat said they uh, are super loving your uh, pathoseq. Do you want to touch on this for a minute? Uh, oh, is this the uh, aspergillus kit? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that one just got through AOAC approval. Um, our South Tech got through AOAC as well. So AOAC is now uh, in place uh, to basically get a lot of these these kits harmonized in the field. A lot of different players out there all using different tools. And so um, there's now a process in place where you run these things through to make sure they meet certain standards. And a lot of that's been enabled because there, there are now standards. We had, we, for the longest time, we haven't had standards that we could ship across state lines. But um, these are all the different organisms that we can scan off of a qPCR machine. Um, you can either use a BioRed or, or an Agilent Aria. We tend to be on the Aria, the Agilent side of this more because they've just been much easier to work with. Uh, and we've just got a, um, a good report then. But uh, they both give si similar CT scores with these kits. Uh, we validate everything on both platforms. But um, the, um, the Aspergillus one is probably the one that we've poured the most heart and soul into because it actually picks up five things in, in, one, in one well with five different colors, uh, which is a, a bit tricky to do in PCR because the number of wavelengths that you can monitor simultaneously. But that one gets um, Aspergillus niger, Flavus, Fumigatus, and uh, Antarius. Uh, and then there's the fifth color is internal control. We always have a cannabis internal control to make sure that uh, you extracted actual cannabis and that we can monitor how much we have relative to that. But um, 
uh, this, yeah, this is, this one's been eaten up quite a bit in California and other places because it's, uh, it's fast, easy, and a quick way to, to get to aspergillus levels. These things are kind of, are kind of tricky to culture. Um, there is a, another paper we just put, uh, it's in review right now, but it's out as a preprint um, that really came out of some work we're doing in Pennsylvania on the enterobacteria side. Um, we kept having people call us, we were getting actually two different answers in Pennsylvania, which is weird. One, one group was saying we're overcalling enteros and other was saying we're undercalling it. And this just to us was like, wait, it's, it's doing one or the other. It can't be doing both. <laughs> so what the hell's going on? Um, and so we got a lot of these um, microbes in and then started going through a lot of the different enterobacterias in ATCC and biobanks and then plating them. And what we discovered is they plate almost uh, in a binary fashion, they don't plate at 36 and they do show up at 26 and 30 degrees Celsius. So the temperature dependence on some of these enterobacteria is extreme. Uh, and if you're not careful and you're growing everything at 36, you'll find none. Uh, and someone else will grow it at 30 and find a boatload. Um, and so we, we've kind of documented that and, and put all that work public just to kind of warn the world. There's a couple of these enteros that do cause, that can cause nasty gastroenteritis or on the CDC's list for you know bugs to be concerned about, but they um, you can easily not find them by growing at too hot of a temperature in, in the culturing conditions. The, the PCR on the sequencing side picks them up. It's, it's temperature independent, so it, it finds them regardless. But um, this is what often gets thrown at us with PCR is that, oh, you've got a live dead problem. You're picking up all this dead DNA because I don't get anything growing. Well, it depends on what you grow it on and what temperature you grow it on. It's probably there. It's just not growing under the conditions that you selected to, to try to, to try to pull them off the plant. Uh, so there's a whole little story on, on, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I you can see from the background I have them in here. I, I kind of uh, dig on microbes. So I, these, these, these stories are always really fascinating to me. Um, the same thing might be happening with the yeast and molds. We haven't done, we did a yeast and mold study out of Michigan where we looked at multiple different medias. Like this one behind me is DRBC. It makes really beautiful images. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's a really, it's got three different selections on it. So not all the, not all the yeast and mold grow on it. We tend to get an order of magnitude, less mold off of these plates than we get off of PDA. Um, and, uh, the problem with PDA is a lot of bacteria comes through on it. So a lot of people just use PDA with chlorophenicol and, and, most of the bacteria goes away, but some of the, some of the yeast goes away with it. So we've done a study looking at different media types, and those can each vary by an order of magnitude on your CFUs. Uh, we haven't done is temperature. We don't want to do temperature next, and we want to do cannabinoids next, because we think the cannabinoids that come off the plant uh, may be playing a role as an antibiotic and, and, how, and what microbes can and can't grow based on it being a type 1 or a type 3 plant. The terps probably play a role too. The terpenes are known to have, um, uh, if you, if you anti, if you, if you actually, uh, fumigate plants with antibiotics, the so terpene profiles change, uh, which is kind of, there's some fascinating papers out there showing that, that there, there, there's some kind of communication going on there. Well, it makes absolutely, uh, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, anyone that understands how to maximize terpenes, how do you maximize terpenes? You maximize the amount of beneficial microbes that the plant's exposed to in its foliar system and it's, uh, root system, right? So yeah. um, that activates the, a genomic expression in the plant's immune system and it creates secondary metabolites that, you know, we call terpenes, <laughs> flavonoids, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that makes absolute sense. And, and I think that's also why, I mean, uh, there was a post this week about Kangen water. I think that's another reason why you should not use Kangen water. Why do you want to sterilize your plants? It's kind of, uh, it goes against what you're trying to do, especially if you're spraying with probiotics and trying to stay organic. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, this is something that drives us nuts because a lot of the states are rubber stamping these total tests in place. And I mean, we have them and we spend a ton of time um, trying to calibrate those things to plates, which is really hard to do given all the variance that, variations I just mentioned to you. But uh, we worry that they they trap growers into this boy in a bubble type of grow environment, which is not uh, is, is not where they want to be. And it's probably not a very long term viable solution to try and have a hyper sterile um, growing environments. I think we, I, so the total tests worry us because they're not measuring anything clinically meaningful. They're measuring a microbiome, most of which is probably beneficial to you and the plant. Um, uh, so we, we've been trying to encourage folks to look at the species specific approach here because you just want to, the ones that are, that are toxic to human, get rid of them. Right. That makes sense. But this idea of like, if you're above a hundred thousand CFUs of bacteria, total aerobic bacteria, it's like, that's, that's not a clinically meaningful number. It's just a, it's a tarot card that they're, they're kind of, it's, 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 it's not actionable. Right. Uh, and it may, in fact, induce a lot of bad behavior by having people now, th- you know, they're going to take the plant and, and start treating it with ozone and all types of other things to try and kill this. And then the ozone has side products you don't know about, maybe on the terpenes, it may form formaldehyde. And it's just a big train, chain reaction of, of, of uh, unintended consequences when you just superimpose the stuff. So we've really been trying to get the word out, like just move towards species specific testing. You just go after the pathogens you care about and not play this games on, on counting total aerobic and total use and mold. Um, it shoots two of our tests in the feet, but um, it, it, those two tests have the highest amount of like service calls because they're always in disagreement depending on how you play it. <laughs> you use a different media, you get a different answer, you know, and um, that, that, that's the problem that we've inherited. Unfortunately, the gold standard out there isn't really locked down. Uh, so you have to, you got to calibrate to something on, on one media type. And the moment someone deviates from that, they're going to get different microbial numbers. So um, yeah, the, to- the total tests, I think are, um, they're not necessarily actionable, meaning clinically meaningful, and they trap a lot of cannabis that probably is just fine for consumption. Uh, and I'm afraid it's going to be a genetic bottleneck that there'll be certain plants that just can't get through and survive with lower loads. And so you're going to lose certain genetics from the field because they don't, they don't fit the paradigm of growing under these regulations. Absolutely. We run into the same thing with aquaponics with non-human pathogenic E. coli. Um, there's a, a many, many species of E. coli. Most of them are, you know, don't affect, you know, livestock or humans, uh, a right. small percentage of them do. So in fact, many species of E. coli are used to manufacture many of the pharmaceuticals that, you know, people listening to this show actually. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Assume every day, just to, just so that you guys are aware of, of how how neutered some of these have become. Same thing with HIV. Many of those are used. Yeah, to, we try uh, and push people towards stack, and that happens. A lot of regulators just throw in E. coli, and we try to call them up. Be like, just please restrict this to stack E. coli because those ones make toxins, and every the other yep. ones just too ubiquitous. Yep. So so what we have managed to do is. Um, utilize the lactobacillic acid bacteria serum from Korean natural farming to treat uh, aquaponic systems uh, in order to eliminate those non-human pathogenic E. coli. And I think that in the future, you're going to start to see some of these probiotic practices become part of food safety practices in a way that you're seeing like regular, you know, clean sprays used in, in rooms, the same, you know, that same kind of application uh, right. but in a probiotic right. way. And now that we're starting to understand the importance of some of their secondary metabolites and exudates and other things in terms of cleanliness. I have, I've heard, have heard of people having success on that route, which is 
like chlorine dioxide or whatever, like clean the grow in advance as opposed to trying to clean it after the fact. Uh, you know, these decontamination things are, aren't, aren't rock solid and it's better to strike the root and actually just have a, have a, a growing environment that isn't loaded with mold growing in the walls, right? Um, we've, we've treated four facilities for that non-human pathogenic E. coli and, and lettuce facilities so far. Well, three oh, lettuce really? facilities and one cannabis facility and 100% after 30 days undetectable. So oh, that's awesome. And so this is just a bacillus spray effectively. It's that, a lactobacillus, that, basically using kefir and air-collected lactobacillus uh, combined to uh, treat that at a one to 1,000 ratio. Interesting. Does it just outcompete at coli or is it actually expressing certain? Yeah, it, can, like, yeah, it outcompetes it and consumes it. So it feeds on the same food sources. And then it also will directly consume it, you know, at least under a microscope. Many species of lactobacillus will actively feed on it. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Now, problem with that is you might you might pop hot for on a tech test. Oh, it'll absolutely grow on agar. So you're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to pass a total CFUs, but yeah. Your stuff will at least be consumable, at least in a healthy Right, state. right, right, right. Abs <laughs> ain't going to hurt you, know. I mean, yeah. you know, that's what your cheese and your butter is. Just for the, <laughs> you know? Yeah, we have that going on in Cubensis. There's um, a temptation for people to run total use and mold tests on it. We keep telling them, like, it's always going to fail. It's it's a mold. Uh, so it's, um, it's, it's kind of like testing cheese for bacteria and mold. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, because I know you were doing some work on it, is um, testing some of the microbiota of the root system. Can you touch on that? Because I know it's something that uh, I know you're working well, on. Well, I, what I would like to do on that is uh, is check for these viroids. Obviously, we, we've, we found those in the in the roots, but I'm kind of curious whether they're making it into, into the mycelium down there, which is a harder thing to extract and get to. Yeah, soil DNA preps are, are, are hard. Um, so it's very difficult to get microbiomes out of soils. People do it, but it's usually requires a little bit of surgery on your DNA isolation to get rid of the humic acid, um, that's in there. Um, we have not run a lot of, uh, soil microbiome studies. Actually, we've mostly been dealing with microbiome studies on flowers and studying, um, like usually whenever there's a discrepancy between our PCR kits and some other method, we end up sequencing to figure out what's going on. Um, sometimes it's on plates, sometimes it's whole genome um, approach. And we always learn something in those, each one of those, that, that whole uh, entero, you know, pathogenic um, enterobacteria study was, was you know, sourced out of one of those things. And then we had a, another paper that published that Zamir Plinger reviewed. And um, I think Cindy also reviewed on the, um, that went over the Michigan, the work in Michigan, um, which was interesting. We did a lot of sequencing there too, just to see every every single microbe that ended up on the plate. We sequenced it and figured out what it is. But you know, there there are some things that are now we now have a trend. That the most recent paper kind of shows you. I think it goes through about 160 or so microbiomes, uh, and you can um, that paper has links to all the microbiomes. That's probably a good place to start. You can go through there and, and see what are the different pathogens showing up in all these different um, microbiomes. But um, some of the, like Pantoa is one that shows up quite a bit. That's one of the enteros that we see probably most frequently in cannabis. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not much of a human, there, there are some documented cases of it getting into people's cuts. Like if, you, if you're a trimmer or something, you know, you might want to watch out for this, but uh, in which case it can cause some human ailments, but it's, it's more of a plant pathogen than a human one. Um, uh, but th that one is, that one's quite prevalent. Um, 
I have, I gotta, I gotta go back through the data to see what, what the next ones are, but the Pennsylvania speeches are all starting to resonate that there are multiple different jurisdictions and multiple different plants were finding uh, Penicillium citrinum, Penicillium paxili uh, are quite uh, are some of the most frequently found ones. Um, so those those are two. We no one's really tracking those. New York was talking about tracking those, but New York's kind of a, it seems like they're um, I don't know they, they're, they've been they've been talking about doing it for a long time and it just hasn't happened. Um, but those are two that would get picked up by a total use and mold test, but are probably they're not targeted by any species specific testing right now. Um, they do make mycotoxins, um, and one of which has been published to be to interact with CBD. But um, you know, at what levels and do they make it on cannabis? We don't know that yet. It's just that they tend to make mycotoxins in saprophytic states, which I don't think the plant ever really sees. So um, they, they no one's picked up the actual um, toxin per se on on the plant. <clears throat> That's that's really cool, and and thanks for sharing that uh, with us as far as uh, those different secondary compounds. So, is there anything else you want to tell us a little bit about some of the other things that you're working on right now? I know you're always cooking up different stuff and working on different testing things. And what are some of the things that people can kind of look forward to? I know you have the the conference coming up and some of the other stuff, but uh, what are some of the other different things that people can kind of look forward to this year? Well, there's, there'll be a rollout of more of these virus tests um, to try and help people on that front. We have this feeling if, if um, people are gonna start moving clones around, we'll probably see more intermixing of those things. Um, and then uh, we are continuing to, we're gonna be rolling out some new, we're putting uh, the total test right now through AOAC. So there'll be some changes there. Those are gonna come out and be calibrated to the NSI standards that are out in the marketplace. In the past, they were, they were benchmarked to a particular plating type, which is, not how um, things are necessarily moving forward. Everyone wants uh, standards to, to be locked down, uh, one particular provider. Um, so uh, those are in place now. Those, those will be coming out. Uh, we've been doing a little bit more work that Yvonne's going to present at CanMed on um, live dead detection. We have, we have a tool out there now that does it, but it, it's not totally compatible with all of our kits. And so we've been doing some work to make it compatible with, um, with our most recent total use and mold updates. Uh, so that that should be interesting because that that will give us the ability to get rid of any DNA that's that's not inside of a living cell and not not inflate the PCR values. Um, I think that's probably the one complaint some people have about PCRs. It can be it can be so damn sensitive it can pick up stuff that's no longer viable after you've treated it per se. Um, and there's some truth to that. Um, we found that in most cases it's it's the media selection that you're using that's throwing the numbers off. But there are cases where you can actually zap the hell out of the out of out of the cannabis flat flower and kill some of the microbes, and we will still pick them up, and plating won't. Um, and uh, they're, they're, we're working on ways to basically minimize that effect, which is an update that's coming uh, this year. And then I don't know, I'm looking forward to doing more of the, the genetics on um, on the plant. There's a big pickup in utilization on Canopedia lately. So a lot more people have been running stuff through there. Uh, we're playing around sequencing a bunch of skunk plants as well to try and see if there's um, any genetics there that might predict those, the thiol production that, uh, that, that Ian published. Um, I think he's uh, we may be, uh, hopefully we'll see him at Canada. I don't know if he's going to Canada, but he's in that, he's in that, 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 uh, that part of California. So um, but I don't know if you caught that, that paper, but they were demonstrating the skunk samples have, or producing some of these thiols, and we don't have any clue what part of the genome is responsible for that. So, uh, we're hoping we might be able to make some progress on sequen sequencing some of those plants, uh, and, uh, and building a better, um, better repository of information to try and sort that out. 
do you do any work with any phenols or any alcohol bonded cannabinoids or any of those types of things specifically at all? I know there's also another path of, of newer research recently. No, no, I haven't. Uh, no, tell me more about them. The last uh, cannabinoid that hit my radar with it was like cannabimovan and, and I think uh, THCP. So I, I haven't. Uh... The, the reason why I asked is because um, things like CBT, which is an alcohol bonded um, a cannabinoid, uh, is is directly correlated with um, uh, powdery mildew expression. So if you have powdery mildew, CBT will hyperexpress. Oh, fact, really? Uh, my, I, uh, I thought. Why was I thinking? Was talking about that. Is CB? I thought CBT was like an. Um, is that made natively by the plant, or or is it get modified after the fact? No, no, no. This is this is from the plant. The CBT and CBL, I think, were the two that they were finding in high in powdery mildew um, positive plants. Oh, that's fascinating. I don't know, for some reason, I thought those were like oxidized or something, but okay. Yeah, that that's, uh, oh, that, that's cool. No, I hadn't, I hadn't seen much work in that. I mean, I mean, obviously we've been seeing a lot more of the Varens come through the dispensaries, which is great to see. Um, those are starting to get products out there that have, you know, CBGV and CBDV and THCV, but I haven't seen really anyone track those. Yeah, the, the Varens are interesting because they're tied to a, a water stress hormone, at least as best I can tell. Uh, from our testing, but we managed to hit 17% in some of our what? internal testing. Now, yeah. were you able to get rid of the, 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 the pentyl version completely, or does it still have some THC? No, it, still has TH, it still had regular THC and, and THCA and, and all the rest, but that Probably was Probably like 5%, percent, right? So, so we, we had an issue with um, uh, a problem with one of our facilities, actually, was my, my ex-girlfriend's house. Uh, she had a big indoor facility in her garage and one of the sections of the aquaponic beds was on a separate loop. And we had an issue with the timer on the pump and it ended up watering it in a weird way. And that ended up causing this hyper expression. And because when we did the testing on it, we're like, what the fuck is different about that? Because they're all the same clones from the same stock material in the whole wow. room. And then we ended up doing further testing on that. So it's something that I want to flesh out a little bit more. Uh, no we've done intended. some repeated testing on it and it, it certainly increases expression, but it's something I want to do a little bit more before we start, you know, I need to find someone that we can do like a, a published paper with on that. But do you have labs down there that are obviously you got someone to measure it down there, but um, yeah, that would strike me as one that uh, I, I'm not even familiar whether the standards would uh, they have a perfect standard for it. Well, the other thing too is CBDV, I think is going to increase in demand quite significantly as people start to understand it more too. So, you know, a lot of these, uh, and THCV is a appetite suppressant and all the rest. So. Yeah. I did find some of those in, um, in, when I was in Boulder last, they had them as like edibles, THCV and CBDV, um, which was, uh, I, I have to say, I've never had that independent of, uh, of the pencil contamination. Uh, like whenever you find it in flour, it's hard to discern the impact of THC versus THCV when it's a mixture of the two, right? Yep. Um, but they actually had them isolated. So you had, they had, I think they were like capsules that had like um, small amounts, like two and a half milligrams yep. per capsule, of like THC, yep. uh, CBDV and CBD or CBDV and THCV. So there was no pentals around. It was really uh, interesting. Yep. Can you fraction it the same way that you can fraction other cannabinoids or is it? I'm, I'm assuming that's what they did in order to, they must've done some kind of fractional distillation to, to get the other cannabinoids out of there. And then they were able to make, you know, capsules that were two and a half and two and a half of just the Varens. Yeah. 
Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. And someone says in Chad Durbin, yeah, that's actually, it was a Durbin cross that we actually had that 17%. So uh, Jamie's house. So that's absolutely it. Oh, wild. Well, that should be exciting to um, keep an eye on this year. Yeah. Let me know if you've got anything there. That's so you don't think that that plant's never, you've got clones, the plant's not shown up before until you stressed it in some way with the water. Yeah. Yeah. It had to do with the stress. Yeah. hundred percent. And and same thing too. Like the CBD view was, was hitting up on the, on that too. I'd have to dig up the COA or if I don't have it, I'm sure she still has it. So. I mean, one thing we did find with, um, it was Doug's Varen, I think we sequenced that one. Uh, we, you know, we were, we were poking around Canopedia and noticed that there's, there's about 15 or 1600 cultivars in there. And um, there were, uh, there's about nine of them that were labeled CBG plants. Um, but uh, they, or I'm sorry, they were, they were labeled as type three plants, um, but they actually had uh, a THC gene in them, right? And, and normally our, our, our Canopedia looks for the copy number of the gene and, and it saw a THC there. So it, re- it classified them incorrectly as type ones. And the, the, in the name of the strain was like CBD queen or CBG. So we're like, this is, something's wrong here. Um, Doug through all the of the data and found that there's there's this variant in there in the THC gene. Um, and we, we even wrote up a little preprint about this, but it turned out Seth Crawford's group actually published about this during the pandemic. And we missed it, <laughs> but uh, they found the same thing that this other variant in THC synthase, uh, known as what is it? It's S three fifty five N, shuts down THC synthesis uh, if it's present with P three through three R. And you can go through Canopedia and, and, and find these things. There's like nine of them in there, but one of them was, was Doug Varen's. And the interesting thing about Doug's Varen is it had one of the copies knocked out, and the other one that was working. All right, so it, it made THC, THCV, but since it only had one copy of the gene, it also made CBG. Like it couldn't, it couldn't fully process all the CBG because one of its genes was, was knocked out from this, this uh, S355N variant that was in there. It was basically haploid for it or, or um, a heterozygous. Uh, well, that was kind of cool to see um, that just the, the number of functional genes are gonna probably change role in uh, the CBG expression. Or how much of it gets converted? Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I never I never heard about anything about that, and uh, it makes me wonder if there's different pathogens that could you know affect that too. You know, Pro- yeah, probably. It's not something that um, that that sample we didn't have. Uh, that was like we got that out of a dispensary in California, so we didn't have any uh, live tissue to work with on that one. That one we just sequenced off a of flower. Yeah, no. I, I, especially with the powdery mildew increasing CBT or CBL, it always made me wonder if we'll have some kind of either um, a cultured or GMO'd uh, microbe that we spray on our plants to boost, you know, expression of X, Y, and Z, you know, 20 years in the future. Yeah. I'm kind of also curious to see how all these triploids play out, you know, they're, 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 they're home beats, right? I think a lot of people don't don't know about them or don't understand what that it is. It's something that was kind of only really announced recently in terms of the commercial market. Um, do you want to kind of uh, give people a quick one on one? I'll probably murder the topic because this is my work. But um, this is this came out of uh, Seth's Actually, I think he's presenting on this at CanMed. But um, you use colchicine to get genome doublings. Uh, you then flow sort those cells because it doesn't happen in all the cells. And then you have some cells that are now. Uh, that are now um, genome duplications. So they're, they're basically uh, um, not triploids, but um, 
they have uh, they have four copies. Polyploid. You cross that. Uh, I'm sorry. A tetraploid, yeah, te a tetraploid. So if you if you cross those with the diploid, you get triploids, and the triploids are sterile. Um, and so you can now make you know hemp that grows outside that's not going to get contaminated by your neighbor's type one plant. Um, so really, you know, really cool move. And and I, you know, they, they've they've reported their the flowers and the yields a little bit larger. Um, and that's uh, that's on the hemp side. I think a presentation I saw at the Emerald Conference from Darkheart is they weren't yet certain on the yield, but they're definitely getting the sterility. They, now they did this on type one plants uh, and repeated some of that work. And uh, they've got, um, and they also noticed that a couple of them were naturally triploid. That was kind of interesting. I think um, I'm forgetting the names of the cultivars that were that were naturally triploid, but I think Mac One was one of them. Um, and uh, and that's one that one's known to you can only clone it. it, it it's known to be sterile. So um, that's uh, that, that's kind of an interesting finding out. So if if they're in fact bigger and they they don't get um, pollinated, that could be very useful for uh, a variety of outdoor grows, but I'm kind of curious what that does to all the terp expression, everything else, because the genome doubling isn't just gonna, you know, obviously the sex chromosomes get get affected, uh, but so do all the other genes. So do they produce more THC? Do they produce different terpene profiles? Like a lot of those things are, uh, I'm sure are still just getting worked out from uh, um, their perspective. And then the other question is what, what about pathogen response, you know? Uh, are the germination rates the same? I mean, uh, that's something that, uh, uh, I mean, they've got some numbers on that, but I haven't, uh, it's too early, I think, to tell how well it's going to, they're going to replicate everywhere else in the world. But um, it does look like a, a nice, uh, exciting new tool we've got in the, in, in, in the tool bed. It's, it's super exciting. And yeah, I know I never thought about that and all the different uh, secondary implications that it, that it might have. Well, uh, is there anything else you wanted to, to mention here? Uh, I wanted to throw up your uh, Instagram and some of your other uh, uh, links here uh, for people that want to follow you. Uh, you can check it out. Kevin underscore McKernan, M-C-K-E-R-N-A-N underscore seven three for listening to you in the audio version uh, on Instagram. And then you can find him over at medicinalgenomics.com. And uh, can c a n n m e d events dot com, uh, and then his podcast is uh, canmedevents com slash coffee hyphen talk. Excellent. No, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to. Feel free to reach out if folks have more questions. Oh yeah, always love having you on. Uh, always love learning about the new different things that you're working on. Uh, really excited to learn more about a. Uh, all the different uh, mushroom genomic uh, information that you're putting out there and uh, uh, always follow on your Instagram for some of the, uh, the best new info on uh, plant genetics and many other things. And uh, I really appreciate what you're doing and um, uh, lots of uh, good info. Definitely want to get into your podcast here in the future. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for all, right. all that you're doing. And uh, if you people are looking for uh, different test kits and stuff, definitely check out medicinal genomics. They're definitely one of the best sources of, uh, uh, you know, plant pathogen testing and all kinds of other great stuff. Excellent. Thank you so much. Looking forward to this. I, I learned so much in every one of these, so we got to do it again. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Always love having you. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. Cheers, man. 
Well, that was a uh, wonderful. Always love having Kevin on. Um, how you doing, Charlie? Good. How you doing, Steve? How you doing, Bolton? That was incredibly informative. I mean, that was just a plethora of freaking information to digest. It was fantastic. All the things that they can do now. He's uh, definitely. Are right, you making me blush? So I'm gonna run away now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> hey, you're not supposed to be here. Wait a second. I know. I'm sorry. What are you doing? You're, you're trimming plants on me? I'm stroking that ego, bro. Just got to stroke that ego, man. All right. I'm out of here. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks. Much appreciated. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah I know. Kevin is truly uh, top of the field when it comes to cannabis genomics or mushroom genomics. Uh, yeah. Few can rival the experience that he has. Uh, there's there's few people that know more about either of those topics. And I mean, uh, uh, we, we he, I think that was the fourth time he's been on the show or fifth time he's been on the show. And uh, I think you guys can see why. Uh, he's a, just a wonderful guest yeah. and uh, really, really has done a lot of the hard work, <clears throat> hard work that the rest of the industry is going to, really rely on when it comes to these genetic tests and uh, and alleles and, and figuring out a lot of these mysteries that we've been running into when it comes to different pathogen expressions. Um, just like you're saying too, uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that these, this uh, viral stuff is going to become a bigger issue uh, as we go mm -hmm. forward and uh, um, people start to understand more about what's going on. So, Yeah, and they're going to they're gonna constantly mutate and change into stay on top of it like that you know they're gonna find the, 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 you know, the defense to everything that we throw at them and they're gonna constantly start evolving you know just like they've always been doing but you know even more i think even more prevalent as, as the industry gets going because it's, it's, there's going to be more and more of it it's going to come to the forefront i mean it's just it's a shame that we haven't been able to do this for decades it's just you know it's only been in the last couple of decades that we've been able to really start figuring out all this stuff you know, I mean, I know it's been in the mainstream ag commercial Aggie, some of the stuff, but some of it is definitely cannabis specific, you know, especially when it comes to uh, to yields and everything else, you know, I mean, a little bit different than just the commercial Aggie and growing a bunch of bunch of corn or a bunch of weed, you know. Yeah, and, and you know, the having those types of community, just like he's saying, having those types of community community-based data inputs is uh, what's going to become critical for finding this stuff out. I know anytime I find anything weird, uh, Kevin's always happy to send me a genetic kit and uh, uh, to get him some weird samples, uh, you know, I'll send him some pictures. And if it's something that he hasn't seen before, he's usually pretty cool about it. So um, yeah, certainly uh, it, it's definitely worth it. If you're our commercial producer to get your stuff sampled. And uh, if you're trying to do any type of protections long-term as well, you, you, know, you can do genetic sampling through them. Uh, although mo uh, most of the stuff that they do is uh, entered in through Canopedia for uh, open source stuff. But, uh, you know, hey, if you do have something, uh, it is a resource that you can utilize. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what What's his background? Where did, he, where did he go to school, do you know? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm just doing, I'm, I'm just trying. Yes, sorry. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just trimming some stuff that I took down uh, about a week or so ago, maybe a little bit more. It dried a little bit quick, so we have a lot of dry air around here lately. Even though we've had some um, <clears throat> rainy days, but uh, it really hasn't the uh, the humidity levels in the air have not been all that great. So um, I slowed it down a little bit, and now I just want to jar it up with a little bit of fresh stuff just to make sure that it stays slowed down. I don't want it to. It's actually this stuff's probably been about 10 days now. 
it's not quite i have you know some of the smaller ones are snapping the bigger ones aren't so um i want to get it more evenly spread out the moisture so i'm just kind of just doing some maintenance on my on my harvest what would somebody do else? if they have their so, that type of state what, what's your uh what's your protocol when you do have about a 50 50 like that get it all jot up as soon as you can and then um and then babysit it for the first 24 to 48 hours i'll check it every maybe six to eight to 12 hours depending upon how 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 moist the, the the real big ones are compared to the smaller ones but i'll dump it out again check everything out let it sit out for about a half an hour see where it stands and then jar it up again just keep constantly going back and forth um i, I really don't use the bavitas or anything like that because i have too much it's just it's just crazy to, to, to have to buy all those so i don't do that um you know i i don't let anything get to the point where it can't get it can't get um just by putting a, a fresh bud in or two um, to have it come back a little bit if it gets a little bit too dry. I do have some people though that no matter how no matter how I cure it, they'll still let it sit out for you know they'll let a couple ounces sit out for uh, at least 24 to 48 hours. They want it super dry, you know. And uh, I'm kind of the opposite. I don't want it super dry. I mean, obviously I want it to break up just the you know perfect, but I don't want it to be um, I don't want it to just, you know, turn into powder. I have some patients who just love it to turn into powder. So, and then they only smoke it. It's not as though that they, uh, they process it in any other way, like edibles or, you know, whatever. They just, um, but that's just the way they like it. But so, yeah, I'll just babysit it for the, you know, I'll just babysit it for a while just to make sure that um, I'm getting that even across the board with all my buds. And it just takes time. It takes patience and time. That's really what it takes, which can be a real pain in the ass sometimes. But if you want to get the, you know, if you want the, you know, I, there's nothing worse than spending all that time on a, on a crop and then all this, you know, you, you have it get too dried out and, you know, the terpenes and, and even the effect, it's nothing like it should be. You know, some of these plants I've had for 10 years, so I know what they should be doing for me. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like there's anything special or scientific about it. You just gotta be, uh, you just gotta stay on it, you know? So, and I've been so busy lately. I just haven't had a chance to. My wife usually does, you know, that's what she does at night. She takes care of the trimming and um, uh, the curing. She's gotten very good over it after the last 12 years or so. You know, we've been together about 15 years, but she's been doing it since uh, I got out of the hospital. I've been trying to, you know, teach her my way anyway. And she's gotten very, very acute at it. I gotta say so because she does most of the trimming and the curing and um, she's been busy I've been busy so you know something's got to give and my daughter's been home all week for vacation you know school vacation so I kind of neglected a couple of trays that I had going just drying so but uh, yeah I'm actually going to try smoking some of this in a few minutes this is this is just uh this is the stuff that i had at the the place that i show the main place i got another i got another 4k upstairs lights just came on and i've been having a problem there i had um you know i haven't run that room in over a year and a half so i um i checked for light leaks because i'm running the, the lights at night so i want to make sure everything was still all set ended up having a slight little pinhole leak in one of my ducts coming in and uh my intake 
And uh, that lasted about two days. And I finally caught it. But then one of my timers didn't go off when it was supposed to go off. And I think I think somebody may have may have nudged it, knocked it, whatever, brushed up against it. And I didn't realize it until you yesterday. Know you know oh. what's better is switching over to those Amazon smart plugs because those those don't those and this is just Marty's got some that have been running for three or four years. I've never had a, a off the shelf timer last three or four years in all the years. Yeah. That stuff. Right? yeah. So they, they're already outlasting the stuff. So some of those digital ones are, are you know, worth the money. You can use your cell phone and in monitor, especially I know you work oh, really? in multiple grows. You can have yeah, each yeah. room set up on its own thing. You can monitor temperature and what's on, what's off. You, you basically, oh, yeah. what you do is you plug every single electrical device into it. You assign it a, a, a name and then a power right. draw. And then you can say, hey, well, why is the fan working so hard? The filter needs to get cleaned. Or, hey, right, why right. is the, pump, the water pump working extra hard? Oh, it need, the, the pre-filter needs to get cleaned. Or it, it just makes it, especially when I work on large aquaponics facilities and I have multiple rooms and I have two or three or four pumps running and I back up pumps. So what happens is if they have an emergency, I can see that the main pump is down. I can shut off that pump, turn the solenoid on, switch, close the one solenoid, open the other one and turn the backup pump on without any employee having to do anything remotely. Oh, that's beautiful. So, it makes it means make sure that there's like an insurance policy where the owner knows that I can make sure that even in a disaster, I can, you know, remotely, regardless of where I am, take control of the situation. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Why the hell am I? Even so, but you can do even on the basic level for like 200 bucks, you can rig up all your, you know, between two and $400, depending on how many electrical plugs you need. Um, you can rig up a room and have it be completely mo- and Marty did a whole yeah, guide yeah. YouTube channel over AP meds on how to how to rig that up on Amazon with your Amazon smart plug. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, I'm gonna be all over that tomorrow. No question about it. Yeah, I mean I've the, the best plugs I've ever used were funny enough were uh, the GE um, dual digitals, and I still have some running to this day, 10 years later. Those ones from Hydro Farm or Sunlight Supply, they, uh, you know, I bought, I don't know, maybe 10 ones about five years ago. I think out of the 10, I think I still might have four. That's it. And the other ones shit the bed within, you know, a couple of months. Something that I always had to stay on top of because I knew they were going to kind of shit the bed. So those G plugs that I use, they're fantastic. What and they're just do- simple, Home Depot. You get the uh, the weather station units uh, from Amazon, and you put one in the grow, and then you put your temperature sensors wherever you want to put them. They're separate. You got all these. You got to keep the batteries in them, right? So you got to get sure. some rechargeable batteries or whatever, like you know, whatever, whatever. But sure. you set all your sensors up, and then you your air temperature sensors. You you set all your plugs up, and then you know all of those are controlling it. You can set it all up so that like fans turn on if the temperature gets too high it automatically turns on extra fans or you know you can rig it up however sure. that you want with different high and low temperature settings and whatever other you know metrics that you want to set it to do yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, uh, yeah i'm gonna look at it because i'm just I'm, I'm actually the room upstairs isn't even kind of finished i got it i don't have it completely dialed in it's um 
I'm keeping my temp. I'm just getting my temperature in 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 gear. Uh, my uh, my parameters, and um, they're starting to stay. The the time is, pitch, you know, they were they were in you know, ten days or so. All of a sudden, you know, my wife cleans out a hallway. One of the times is because I can't run all my cords because you know I'm at home here, so I can't run all my cords the way I, you know obviously the way I would I would love to. So I've got to drag friggin' extension cords everywhere. You know, I get the 14 or 12 gauge extension cords to make sure I have plenty of power going through those freaking wires. And then, um, and then, uh, yeah, she cleaned out the hallway and she must have brushed the, the, the on off button and it just stayed on. So I didn't catch it for two days. Now I got my Hell's Angel, one of my Hell's Angels in there. It's, it's looking funky, man. Like it doesn't know which way it's going. And I'm like, uh, I know I'm going to have to take this one down. I'm just hoping the rest of them is 23. I hope that I don't have to take the rest of them down. A, That's for sure. I have a question. What, what's your opinion then? Because it seems like this might be a, a similar scenario. Um, I was listening to Rasta Jeff this week on, um, I don't remember which show it was. I think it was Do Grow Show, but it might have been on one of the other ones about um, him doing uh, longer uh, light times at the last week or two of flower in order to boost flower production. Um, uh, what yeah. Are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I... I mean, it's it, once you're past a certain point, um, it's worth trying. I've never done it. You know, I've always run, you know, well, at least for the last eight, 10 years, I've always run, you know, 13 and 11, 13 off, 11 on in my, in my cycle and uh, never had a problem. I find that some strains initiate flower a little bit, a few days, you know, four or five days earlier, some of them, depending upon which strain it is. But um, I've never run it longer. Um, you know, maybe you're going to get more production, but I, I also think that you're going to, you know, and I'm just saying this obviously uh, shooting from the hip, but I would think that maybe, you know, some of those strains, man, and they might not like it. And, and um, you know, how quickly they're going to, you know, I don't know how long you're going to do it for either. You know, you might, if you do it for a day or two or even a week, maybe, I don't know if you're going to have any problems. Anything longer than that, I think that you, the, you could actually end up with fluffier bud because that 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 plant is going to want to kick right back into veg if it's going to get if it's really sensitive, you know, if it's sensitive genetics, you know, like any cookie strain or anything like that. Um, I don't know if I try it with any, you know, I've always found my cookie strains to be highly sensitive to any kind of light cycle or changes. And um, but um, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's one that, uh, I don't know if I try keeping the lights on longer. I would certainly back off, <clears throat> excuse me. I backed off my, my lights a little bit towards the end sometimes to get the cooler temps, maybe to bring out some color or to, uh, you know, bring that, those turps right, right out. Um, you know, so my temps not, and, and the, the, the turps on is, you know, cause I can run, run my lights pretty close to my plants, you know, I'll really push them. But um, so in the end, I can back off. You know, I don't necessarily, I haven't for years anyway, shut my lights off for days before I start harvest. I know some people do that and that's, that's fine. I, I've never had any problems. I mean, I've never heard of anybody having any problems with that. But to, to, to put my lights on, I mean, the worst you might get is, I mean, it's too, too, too far into the cycle to have anything to really freaking produce a seed. If it does produce a seed or a, uh, or a herm, a sack, 
you know, it's so late in the cycle that most likely you're going to get it down before it could really do any damage to your harvest. Yeah, yeah that's I, kind I, of the way I look at it, but... It's something I would love to do a side-by-side on when I'm able to. Uh, it definitely got me sure. thinking. Yeah, I'd, I'd be really curious, too. I mean, shit, if you can pump out an extra ounce of plant or something like that, just by leaving your lights on, that could be that could be quite a, a significant difference when you've got hundreds of plants in a room. Oh, yeah. That's no, a that's huge, exactly. huge difference. Yeah, yeah, God, I would love that. Yeah, let me know when you do it. I might even I might even try something like that if I ever have the opportunity. Well, I'm not yeah, sure. Well, it'd be interesting to like, hey, if you have a tent, like throw a tent up and and throw that in the corner and just give it, you know, a mirrored light schedule with one light on it or whatever. You know what I mean? And see, but you give yeah, it that yeah. longer light schedule at the end. Just those last two weeks, throw it in there and give it that longer light schedule. Yeah, I do actually have a, a five by five or a four by four hanging around. Maybe I'll throw it down the basement and see what the hell I can do with it. That's what I'm saying. If you're already, condition. If you got anything in flower and it's getting close, just grab it the last week, you know, two weeks, and toss it in the room and grab one of the lights, throw it in there, and and you know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. No question. And just just yeah. to do the side by side, you know, because yeah, Rasta Jeff was swearing by it, and I think. It makes sense, I, especially that late too. Just like you're saying, by the time it had a chance to light Herm, you're going to be chopping the thing down. It's not even going to right. have dump pollen yet, better yet, fertilize anything. So, yeah, yeah. Dude grows tonight. Actually, one of the headlines was uh, was uh, pollination late in flower. You know, that was kind of the headline I saw of his show. I didn't get into the show far enough because you came on, so I kind of switched over. But I was curious to see what they had to say about that. You know. If you did get pollination late in, in flower, I, I don't think it would have any, you know, as long as it's so close to harvest, wouldn't do anything. Have you done any seed production? What's what's your preferred uh, method? No, I've never done any seed production. I've done all, quite a bit of testing over the years for other people, but I, I never have. Lately, though, I will say um, with uh, what's what Fumi's been doing and other people and... Um, uh, I've been very curious to maybe start, especially in Tommy, Tommy Trikes, um, testing out some of these strains that I've had around that are truly favorites of mine and patients and see what I can create by crossing maybe a couple of them and see what comes up, you know, just, um, just be a chucker and just get my, my feet wet, trying a little bit of it because, um, yeah, I would, I would love to, uh, I would love to get into, I would love to get into some breeding, to be honest. That would be a really fascinating area. I've just never, never tried ever. I've always had bad seed, bag seeds in the beginning, you know? I mean, that's what I started with, with bag seed. I mean, we, we obviously have, when we grill a grill, we'd always have that friggin' male plant here and there that, that would be too close to our females. And, you know, half a plant would get, depending on how the wind was, sometimes we get half a plant that was seeded and half a plant that wasn't. But uh, I'd be, uh, yeah, I'd love to. I would love to, especially with this blueberry fuel, this blueberry fuel I've had around forever. And uh, it still is one of my number one favorites. It's like, I gotta have this available every week, no matter what, even if I don't have anything new, you know, they wanna try something new, but then they, they, they always go back to this after a couple of weeks. Though I just took down that, um, the other one too from exotics I got was that uh, lemon freeze pot, heavy, heavy indica. I smoked it last night for the first time on the show. Oh my God, <laughs> an hour after the show, I was sitting down, fell asleep, sitting up again. 
because I was, I was, it hit me so hard because I'm not a huge Indica guy, but um, yeah, I'm a, I would like to see what that, what I, maybe I could do something like that. I mean, that and, and it's got beautiful lime color to it. The smell is fantastic. And then, uh, you know, see what I can, see what I can, I can do with something like that. I just got to, I got to, I got my seed collection downstairs and I got to go through it, pop some seeds, see what I can get. You know, I had a Durban poison two years ago. I had three seeds that somebody gave me from York and it was a true Durban two, um, you know, structure growth, everything. I mean, things stretch from freaking to the sky and uh you know made those huge colas but very airy you know you know straight straight equatorial there's no question about it but um the turps i can see why it's run mostly to uh to process and put into cartridges and oils and stuff like that because um the terpene profile was just absolutely fantastic but uh you know if i can crack some seeds and find something like that because i got one male out of three seeds i got i got no i got one female or something like that i can't remember i know i got a male that looked beautiful in veg never flowered it out and i should have you know i should have taken the opportunity at the time but i, I just didn't have the time so i just kind of chopped him down after I, I kept him around for a few months first because i was like hoping to have maybe do something with them but if i could find something like that and then you know start doing some experiments with with crosses just in a tent like you say that's that's always been my uh if i was going to do it that's the way i do it and I just put nice. it downstairs in my basement away from, away from everything. The nice thing about Sorry. the Durbans is, is that they're super heat tolerant. I mean, the, they're one of the ones I always often recommend to people outdoors in Oklahoma because they, they just, they don't care if it gets 105, 110, yeah. as long as you give them a good amount of water in the evenings, they're sure. perfectly fine. Yeah. I could crank the one I had. I could crank it right up, literally right up on top of my light and it didn't it didn't burn and it didn't uh it didn't foxtail i mean it didn't it just loved it almost it seemed and uh and i had it practically the the, the top of the plant touching the, the glass on, on my light and it, it didn't even blink an eye and uh middle of the summer i think my ac went out one day while they were doing electrical work in the building and i, I forget how how it happened and my ac went off and uh, it was like 104 in there. It was the only plant that kind of laughed at it. And thankfully, my other plants were like, you know, help me. Please cool me down quick. But, um, you know, nothing drastic happened because it was only for about a day. But, um, yeah, yeah, those, those, that's the one thing I did find. That was the only time I had a real, real true Durban poison, and I saw what it could do. Fantastic plant, man. I will say that. Just the flower wasn't such a huge hit. I should have just processed it all. I have my guy process it all. I got a good guy that processes everything that I get. Remedies. Remy, this kid Remy from uh, from around here. He's won a couple of, uh, he actually came in second at one of the Emerald Cups, I believe it was out in freaking California. This was in 2015 or something. But uh, he makes this beautiful stuff now and it's all solventless, if I'm not mistaken. And uh I should have had him run him. I got I got so much for him to run. I won't let anybody else touch my stuff. So I got stuff stashed in my freaking mini fridge, waiting for him, waiting for him to get up and running again. I guess he's doing it for some uh, one of the big processors now. But he's looking for a space for his own. He's got last I knew anyway. He had like six tubes. He actually got he actually got raided a few years ago. He was totally legal too. I mean, he had, he got off the case and he, it cost him about ten grand to you know for the lawyer and everything else but a lot of people helped him out i helped him out as much as i could too just uh from finances to uh making sure he had medicine and didn't run out 
but um, he had six tubes, six one-pound tubes running. Six one-pounds or half-pounds, I can't remember. But either way, they were good-sized friggin' tubes that he was running. And I, I believe he was doing the CO2 back. No, dry ice, that's what it was. He was doing a dry ice extraction, if I'm not mistaken. But um, yeah, he was like a friggin' machine. So I wish I had him back then and I could have friggin' had him do my turban. That would have been a beautiful thing. But... Yeah, I'm just trying to uh, get this place upstairs. I'm really tweaked, man. I hope the rest of my plants fared with that white leak. What uh, uh, what cultivars are you growing these days? I have um, I have that, that lemon freeze pot from Exotics. I have um, apple water, which I just took down the first run of. My wife is trimming that right now, and then um, I have the hell's that the hell's angel that I got from that hell's OG hell's angel OG the biker cut that I got from Swerve years and years ago eight years ago anyway i still have that around because that's still uh well liked. plus i like it it's one of my favorites and then i have uh, this blueberry fuel that i sifted myself the other ones are from clones i just mentioned the uh, apple water and the lemon freeze pop um and then i have um i have the huckleberry cookies i sifted that from seed that one's going to get the cut i think though because i mean it's going to get the um the x because um uh, the x rather because it's uh, just too much leaf, man. It really produces a lot of friggin' vegetative matter around those buds. So I think that um, I think I'm gonna get rid of that one because it takes forever to trim it. And then I also have um, I have the GMO. I have uh, a real. I got the real cut of the GMO. Uh, um, I have um, uh, what else do I have? Oh, I have the garlic breath. Um, from Thug Pug, I believe that is. And then um, and then I have Tropicana cookies, the beautiful cut that I got from, uh, from the same only guy I get cuts from. I don't get cuts from just anybody. I just get it from one guy. And he sifts uh, a few hundred seeds at a time. And he'll pick out the keepers. And uh, so I have Tropicana cookies. It smells and tastes just like a freaking sun-kissed orange. And then I have, uh, and it's really, really dark. Like you'd almost think it was black. Um, and then, uh, and then what else do I have? What else do I have? Um, I'm missing something in the mix here that I have. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. There's something though I'm missing. And then I have, um, and then of course the blueberry fuel, if I didn't mention that. Sour apple I have. That's another one, sour apple. Um, and then, uh, Shit, I, I had a bunch of uh, ocean-grown stuff, you know, a few years back, like Bewitched. I had uh, actually had a uh, love potion of 99 that I got from from uh, PH Nerd, and it was fantastic. And then, um, but I had a lot of stuff, and then they started uh, they started making some strains, and I was testing them, and, and everything I was getting was bunk. I, I even got some, you know, some of uh, Veda's Jawa pie. I cracked um, ten seeds. I got two that I thought might be keepers, but I ran them like three, four times, and I was like, oh, this thing isn't anything special. I got to take this thing down. I find that a lot. I find that a lot with seeds. You know, you really have to sift a, quite a few to, sometimes, depending upon the genetics, obviously, but you really got to sift because I can't. It's the way the market's going now. You got to have not just a cut above, man. You got to have a cut above, above because, um, you know, everything I was just reading today, too, about, about uh, how the market's taking a dip and, 
how investors are losing money left and right because you know they were hoping that things were going to change with the with the Congress and everything since everything was democratically run. They thought it was going to be a freaking big shift, and finally the federal banking system was going to be open. Of course, it's gone nowhere. So you know they're trying to say that the black market's still thriving, which it isn't. It's 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 thriving, but the prices aren't aren't there. But you know, I don't know who who they interview for people, but they're saying that you know some of the some of the comments actually, I think it was that I was reading on the article. They were saying how, um, yeah, you know, they can they can pay cheaper prices on the street than they can in the stores, and they're getting you know most of the time they're getting better stuff than they are in the stores now. I know Massachusetts is really up their game over the last year, year and a half. Things have gotten a lot better, especially when it comes to uh, choice of a flower. Flower was going so fast that you know you'd walk into a store and you'd maybe have four strains to pick from and out of those four strains one might be you know halfway decent but they wanted an arm and leg for it you know they wanted the full you know 450 500 for an ounce that's before taxes so you're paying close to 600 six, 550 600 dollars for a freaking ounce of weed that's absurd that's just absurd how can anybody afford that and even on the medical side how, how can you afford that man just insane i give so much away just so much away. Anybody needs anything, just, you know, just contact me, man. Yeah, take it. Take it. You need it, man. You need it. Just call me. Just, you know, email me. Do whatever. DM me on Instagram. I do check my DMs. I got a, means, a friend of mine makes a bunch of rosin and he saves all the pucks and cooks it down into butter and into uh, olive oil or coconut oil. And nice. Yeah. Keeps it, and then whenever there's a, a little old lady or just someone's like, "Oh, my dad's sick," it's like, "Here, here's six bottles. Let me know when you're empty." Yeah, no? yeah. You know, my godfather right now has Parkinson's, and I know, I know it would help him. And he's just so old school. Between he and my aunt, and even his kids, I don't think that um, I can't even bring it up to him. You know, I can't even bring the subject up, which is a shame, because I really think that it would. And he's really progressively gotten worse. I mean, I haven't seen him over a year and a half because he just doesn't want to be seen. You know, I email him and I email, you know, these kids. We're really close. But um, just to even bring up the subject is is really, I got to, it's, it's like I'd have to tiptoe around it. And I don't even know how, how receptive they would be about it because they are so conservative. You know, same with my father. My father has this disease in his mouth. Uh, we finally find the name out, actually. Easter, it's called uh, uh Imagine M M E G E N or M A G E N, and it's a it's a it start it can start in your in your mid years. It started with my father in his late thirties, early forties, but it can be brought about by stress, um, physical and emotional stress, and uh, it's it's where his whole mouth, from his the bottom of his nose of his septum and his tongue, he completely loses control. It's tough for him to talk. It's tough for him to eat, and um, it actually. Uh, interfered with some of when he was at Hancock, you know, he ran the real estate department for, for years, for almost 40 years, but it, um, you know, he went, for, he could have, he could have become the uh, COO of the department and they wouldn't give it to him because of his, his disease in his mouth. And they've thrown everything at him, everything from, uh, you know, from Valium, Diazepam to, uh, to Clon and he hasn't taken them. You know, he, I, I don't think he ever took, they gave him 500 Valium one time. Now this was back in the early eighties, and uh, he didn't take him. He still has him in his freaking drawer, you know. And he and I joke around about it. He's like, "Hey, Bill, can you make some money?" <laughs> and 
and he wouldn't and he doesn't take it but you know i wish i wish i could approach him on this and and it, it, i to be honest if it wasn't for my stepmother i could approach him on it and ask him if uh, you know he'd be willing to try something that might might help relax those muscles that would help him you know even eat eat you know just a shame man how people have really stuck on stigma you know and it's not even it's not my father it's my stuff it's my stepmother you know she is just so oh my god easter was just you know it's like you have to you know god love her she came into a family with three young kids when she adopted us and married my father and all that stuff but you know she was just so ruthless she brought the convent with her excuse me and uh you just can't bring up anything well i shouldn't say that she has a thing she has a thing for me she has a she doesn't she doesn't like me that much and uh because i'm a complete 180 of what she is and um but you know i wish i could you know the funny thing is is i could talk to my father about it privately but every time i get any kind of privacy with my father she's got one eye on me because she doesn't want me talking and getting private conversations even with my brothers you know she doesn't like it you know so she came in and started uh she started on, on on Sunday. I was talking to my youngest brother, who's her her only kid, you know, through the marriage. And uh, oh yeah, as soon as she, she saw it, he and I were alone talking. She came beelining it right into the kitchen just to see what we were talking about. So, and there's my brother all stressed out, man, crying on my shoulder about shit, you know. And it's like, and it's like, you know, just can you just leave us alone for a few minutes? Do you mind? You know. But I, I, I just wish, you know, bottom line is I wish I could help my father at least talk to him because he's not, he's not anti, he's not anti-pod. I mean, he admitted to me back in, back in the seventies, how in the, when he first started with Hancock, he was on some business trip. I, I can't, I can't remember if it was California or, or Florida, you know, because Hancock owned all the orange groves and uh, he was in a convertible with a bunch of guys. And, and one of them was a younger guy and probably my father's age at the time. And uh, he pulled out a big bag of weed. My father took a look at it, smelled it and all that stuff. So, you know, he's not, my father's not, you know, Mr. Tight ass like that, but just my stepmother is. But, you know, he's 84, he's got bursitis really bad. I know some of these would help with that inflammation. He's got bursitis in his hip really, really bad. Like he can't, sometimes he falls, he, he begins to fall over when he takes a few steps, you know. He's gonna be 85 years old this year. So, you know. I'd like to see his quality of life get better before, before it ends, you know, he's my only, my only real parent left, you know? So, yeah, I know when I uh, visited my pops. That's when you say education, that's why when all the time, whenever you say we need to educate the public, I just, you know, my ears perk up like, yes, like these people need to be frigging almost freaking shoveled down their throat. Like get over it. Will you more people die from frigging alcohol drugs and no one's ever tried. Last time I visited my dad, uh, I left him a vape pen. And then the, the, well, the time before last, I left him a vape pen. And this time I left him some gummies. I figured, well, I'll leave them in the fridge. And I know, know, hey, if you can't sleep one night or you're in a lot of pain, just take this. Yeah, yeah. Nothing bad will happen. You'll be okay. And you'll take this, lay in bed, you'll have a good night. You know, it'll be fine. Have you have you noticed them? Have you noticed them like slowly diminishing in the fridge? Have you been back? I don't know. Oh like, no, 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 because I, I my dad lives in Philly, right? So I'm only there for a couple of days a year. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. uh, but yeah, we'll we'll see if they're there when I go it's back. Funny. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't live that far. I live about an hour, hour and 15 minutes away from my father. I mean, he lives, you know, blocks away from my two younger brothers down in Marshfield. But um, I mean, I could see him more, but I have to go through my stepmother. And it's just, oh my God, if you knew the freaking hoops you have to jump through to just freaking talk to my father, my God. You know, but so we've been together 50 years now. So what am I going to say? <laughs> what uh, what tips or tricks have you learned over the years? Uh, uh, you've got quite a bit of experience on the cultivation side. Uh, tell us a couple of things you think maybe uh, newer growers might need to know uh, or maybe some tricks that you can tell us to save some time or labor or other things like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Pretty simple. I, I, I use the kiss method method. I always have my whole life, no matter what it is, you know, um, watch your plants, inspect them every day, uh, go from top to bottom. Um, you know, especially when you have a small grow, it only takes a few minutes to go through everything. Um, make sure you make sure you keep that airflow going. Uh, you know, they don't have to be frigging waving in the wind, but you want a little bit, you know, you want them moving a little bit. So make sure you have plenty of airflow. Clean up your bottoms. Um, inspect when you're cleaning up your plants. Make sure you don't have any pests. It's the best way to do it. Uh, take the time. It's all patience. Take the time to make sure you inspect your plants at least once a week, just to make sure you have no, you know, anything from powdery mildew. Powdery mildew is not going to happen just in, in, in flower. It's going to happen in veg. Um, uh, so inspect your leaves, take the time to, uh, inspect for bugs. You can't just look at one leaf and think, oh, I don't have any, have any problems. You know, you need to go to every part of the plant, top, middle, bottom, and, uh, and take a, at least a couple of leaves from each and take the time and scope them. Um, you're not going to see the damage until it's too late. Most of the time, especially if you get spider mites or even thrips, you know, thrips can, uh, this, this slow migrators just like spider mites can be but you want to catch them early, um, you know, instead of a, make them a nuisance, not a problem. Um, um, don't spend any money on, on sprays. I mean, if you do, uh, you know, trifecta, it can be a little pricey, but um, it's one of the best that I, I, that I've ever used off the shelf, but make your own, you know, use the, use the uh, coriander, the garlic, the peppermint, the, the clove. I mean, you can make your own, boil it up, sift it out, and then uh, take that oil and, and then add, you know, do your, do your ratios and just uh, use that. It's super simple and it's extremely quick and it won't smell as bad as some of those crappy sprays you're gonna buy in the store for an arm and a leg. And uh, that's the one thing I like about Trifactor, it actually smells pretty good. So, um, and, uh, and just get to know, you know, um, when it comes to soils, you know, I, I, I've never done a living soil. Super soils, yeah. Make sure you get your dry back, don't overwater. You're better off underwatering than you ever are overwatering. Once you overwater, you're gonna have a, you're gonna, you, can, you can potentially have a problem right off the bat from one overwatering. Um, some of those the roots start dying out, they, they drowned and uh, you're gonna have some problems. And the, sometimes the plant, depending upon the genetics, it'll never come back correctly. So, uh, or full in full health sometimes because it's beaten its way through those friggin' rotten roots down there. So, um, you know, that's why I can't wait to try a living soil. You know, that's what I'm going to, I'm going to switch this place over. You know, uh, every time I have to go to the store and buy another bar, I, I run canna. I run a simple, I run a very, very simple recipe. I use the, the canna base. I, I never use it at full strength. If you used to, if 
you do use bottle boots, ever, ever use them at full strength, use them at a quarter to a third strength. And then if the plant says it wants more, then you can up it, but always never give it anything that the package says. And, um, and just make sure that you're, uh, and like I said, a big thing, uh, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made back in the eighties when I, when I went into it was that um, I was overwatering so much because, you know, and don't, this is the biggest problem I made at first too. Uh, the biggest thing I, I did at first was um, I was giving them too much attention, you know, um, overthinking things. You know, that's probably why I was overwatering a lot back then, you know, let them, let them droop a little and, and talk to you when they want to drink. Um, you know, wait till you see them and lift your pots to make sure that you can get a gauge to when they are dry. I mean, some, I have my garlic breath. It doesn't like to get completely dried out. The GMO doesn't like to get completely dried out either. Though it can take, they, it can handle it really well if I do, because I want to get my watering schedule all, all, you know, aligned as much as I can for everything. So, um, but, uh, you know, get to know the weight of the pots too, you know, no matter what size your pot it is, it doesn't matter, you know, get used to it. And then, um, but yeah, the, the, don't give them too, too much attention. Give them the right, right. When you do give them attention, give them the right attention. Don't overdo it and get your watering down. That's, that's kind of key, you know? That's another thing, another reason why I want to go to freaking living soil because then I can just put the pipe in there and do a little wick feeding, you know? Just, just uh, constantly have something that's going to have a float valve that can top itself off. And, you know, uh, I'm a pH guy. I'll probably still pH everything, you know? Um, if I do, you know, teas and everything else, but um, I don't even know if I'll do all that stuff. I just want to get down. I, I just want to get the feel for that living soil, man. That's I, I'm really kind of excited. I just don't want to have a bad. I can't. I can't afford to have a bad harvest. I gotta pay the. I gotta pay the electric bill. So I wish I could do outdoor, but I can't do outdoor. I got neighbors that just right on top of each other. So and I don't have the time to go out and find a place to gorilla grow. So I'm just gonna stay indoor for now. But yeah, just don't over, don't don't give your plants the wrong attention. When you do, give it the right attention. And uh, watering key, you know, learn what they want and what they don't want. And every strain can, can be different, you know. But they don't like to be wet. That's the one thing cannabis plants they don't like to be saturated all the time. I mean, living soil. I'm not talking living soil. I'm talking cocoa, super soils. They don't like to be completely saturated all the time. So just get your watering down. Pretty simple. And stay on top of the bugs, man. Stay on top of the bugs, make them a nuisance and, and not, a, not a serious problem. Because we've all been there having serious problems. <laughs> it's, it's usually because I don't give them enough attention. You know, I'm really not taking the time to really inspect my leaves and, you know, even the stems too. You know, some of the stem crawlers, man, they'll crawl right off that leaf and right under the stem just to hide from you. So that's about it. Nothing, nothing serious, I guess. That's about it. Are you uh, um, any plans for any uh, new strains that you're going to be popping, or are you pretty settled on what you got, or do you have any kind no. of? No, I'm constantly up? changing. Yeah, no, I'm, I constantly. Um, I have I have some of the ones that I named off already have been staples in my gardens, but I I usually change things up every. Uh, you know, I'll crack seeds every six months, eight months. I'll crack uh, four or five new strains. Um, I just haven't done it because I wasn't sure how I was where I was going to land with that problem that I was having at that garden, and um, so I really haven't uh, I haven't changed anything up. The places that run commercially, they, we just get everything from clone, so and it's supplied by the same guy. I get the clones for from from my personal gardens. So, um, but yeah, I'm gonna I have a bag full of seeds downstairs. I'm gonna start going through and, and see what's up. 
up. I have actually some of uh, Tommy's seats that um, that uh, Smash gave me when we went to that thing in New York back in uh, whatever it was, October, whatever. And then um, I'm definitely going to crack some of, some of his seats and see what I come up with. I think it's the G13 skunk, I believe. I, I believe it has the skunk in it for sure, the one he gave me, because I was really excited to see the skunk in it. Um, and I've got a, uh, I've got some archive seeds that I'm going to go through and see which ones I want to pop. I actually have a number 22 dosi dough I was thinking about because I heard it got better as it went down, as it got as it got older, and uh, and and a little more uh, work was put into it. I heard that the archives 22 is is pretty good. I heard the original dosi dough looked really good on the vine, and uh, looked really good in the bag, but it really wasn't anything to write home about when it came to effect and taste but um, i'm hoping this one might be because i've been thinking about that one for a while so that one's definitely one i'm going to crack um and uh i have so many I, I i mean i got a bunch of um i have a bunch of ocean grown ones that i might go through and see if there's anything that's worth doing but uh, i'm i was with them for 10 years so i don't know if i'm gonna uh or eight years i don't think i'm gonna do anything from them but uh i'm gonna go through in the next couple of weeks and see what i can uh sift out that catches my eye but definitely that dosi dough number 22 for sure and then there's another one i can't think at the top of my head that that um that i wanted to do i do have some autos that were given to me that were supposedly um they were <clears throat> excuse me they were given to me but uh up in that uh that convention up in new york it's um it's uh oh god um the name's gonna escape me who they were who they were made by uh very prominent name um Give me a second. Give me a second. Mental block, but tip of my tongue. Oh, oh God. Oh, and I didn't put a label in it either. What they, what, who made them? Um, watch as soon as I'm, as soon as we're off the show, it'll come to me who, who made them. In fact, I think I have them right here. No, I left them. I left them at the guy last night because I left that bag there. But anyway, they're going to be the first autos. Now I do have some autos that I, I've had around for years, but. And I mean, like, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years, uh, you know, and I don't think I'm going to crack those only because, um, you know, I know back then they, they really weren't to the, to the, uh, they really weren't, hadn't been worked to where they are today. So I'm hoping the ones that were given to me, uh, see, I'm still thinking of that name. See, it's just right there. I think, I think the last name begins with an L. Famous breeder too. And I can't remember who the hell it is. Um, so, um, so I think I'm going to crack some autos and see what the hell I get out of those. And because um, those can go into any light cycle, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, is that right? I can put them in 24 hours of light, or I can do a. Yeah. Do again, we never recommend any plant be under 24 hours. Uh, 18.6 right. is really the maximum we ever recommend. But um, there was also a question in chat. Someone said, uh, oh, "Fuck, where is it? Is regalia okay to use with living soil?" Yes, regalia is perfectly fine. It's just an extract from giant knotweed, which is a pest. Pro uh, it's actually a, a huge problem in the south. So they basically harvest this invasive weed, uh, extract the juice from it, and then uh, you know make a product out of it. So it's uh, nothing inorganic about it at all. I don't. I don't think it's OMRI certified, but you know, there's nothing inorganic about it. Maybe not quote unquote organic, but uh, that's not my specialty. Yeah, I almost got some of that. I almost got uh, some of that I, about a year ago. So I've used it. It didn't work, and then I moved on. 
So if it works for you and your particular strain of powdery mildew, yeah, great. right, right, yeah. I have not had a good results, but doesn't mean that you won't. You yeah. know, just like we were talking about earlier with with Kevin, there's so many different species of powdery mildew. It's going to this is the reason why you need to have multiple things in your toolbox. So that if something doesn't work, you're like, cool, that didn't work. We're going to move on to the next one. That didn't work. We move on to the next one until we find something that is in your toolbox that's going to work for your type. And, you know, sometimes you'll hit it on the first time. Sometimes it's the second or third. You know, sometimes it's the fifth. You know, it just depends on what it is that you're trying to get rid of. Yeah, good advice. I have more than one freaking bullet in the chamber. Make sure that you can hit everything. No matter what. Oh, yeah. Especially if yeah. you're trying to stay organic, going with biocontrols, having the Berea Bassiana and Aceria Fumiceraceae, and, or uh, what's it called now? Uh, Cordyceps Fumiceraceae, I think is the new designation on it. Um, uh, they just changed it a couple of months ago because, you know, hey, let's be confusing. Um, <laughs> but PFR97 is the same product uh, at the end of the day. But alternating with those different types of probiotics will give you much better results. All right. Well, uh, do you want to tell everybody how to find you? Or if not, um, uh, you know, you can find him on the uh, Fumi show at Fumador and the Flavors and my show. And then uh, if you want to plug in anything else, great. If not, uh, that's fine too. No, that's where to find me. I mean, I have videos on YouTube and I am on Instagram, but I haven't been on there for, forever. You know, and I always say I'm going to get back on, but I don't have time. Last time I was on Instagram, I was spending sometimes four hours, four or five hours a day on it, just scrolling through, you know, great feeds and, um, you know, people that I knew and, and uh, yeah, and it's just, it ate so much time up in my day that I just haven't been back. And then with all the bullshit they were doing with, uh, you know, shutting channels down and everything else. But, you know, I still have some videos up. You can see my old DWC that I used to have going at that place that I show. And then my transition over to Coco. Um, and then hopefully you'll see me transition over to, uh, some living soil here eventually. And, uh, but no, you can find me either on your show and I'm always honored when you ask me on, you know, allow me on Yeah, potent. I really appreciate it, man. Okay, I love you know. having you on. Thanks, uh, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, no problem. I hope everybody has a good night. I'm gonna head out. Cool, cheers. Thanks for coming. Peace. Cheers. No worries, man. We had a, a question from Chad. Uh, what was the, what did I say after Bavaria Bastiana? Uh, it was Isaria, I-S-A-R-I-A, uh, Fumiceraceae. I don't remember how to spell Fumiceraceae off the top of my head. Um, the new spelling is Cordyceps Fumiceraceae. Um, so you can look that up. The product that um, is the, uh, the two products that come to mind would be uh, a product called Ancora. A-N-C-H-O-R-A, -A, I think it is, or some something close to that. And uh, the other one is uh, PFR97. So PFR97. And you can find the species name from there. Um, so either way, you'll get the right name. The, the Metarizium is coming back. Metarizium <clears throat> used to be a really good product called Met52. It was cool because it also worked on um, ants. But... Uh, uh, ants are um, something that's kind of harder to treat, same thing with termites. Uh, so uh, that was neat, but um, they pulled it from the market temporarily, but now there's a new a new company making it. So that'll be coming back on the market in the next month or two. Uh, so look for that. I, I don't know what the new commercial product name is, but I do know that it's coming. So. 
Alrighty, everybody. Well, thanks for watching. Uh, always love having Kevin McKernan on the show. Uh, again, you can check him out at medicinalgenomics.com. Uh, you can check him out on Instagram at Kevin underscore uh, McKernan, M-C-K-E-R-N-A-N underscore seven three uh, on Instagram. His podcast is called Coffee uh, Coffee Talk. Um, you can find it at uh, CanMed Events, C-A-N-N-M-E-D-E-V-E-N-T-E-S.com slash coffee hyphen talk uh, you can find out his um the gen genomic sequencing for the psilocybin uh, cubensis um, is going to be at psilocydia so uh, p-s-i-l-o-c-y-d-i-a dot net uh, to check that out if you want to see the sequencing on that um, and uh, yeah there's all kinds of goodies uh, you can find myself and Marty over at uh, apmjclass.com. Again, we have about 24 hours left on the class sale. Uh, tomorrow is uh, the last day of the sale for Earth Day. Uh, again, AP420 uh, for uh, $75 off the class. We have a full long length class on that. We'll also be launching some new classes later on this year on uh, some specific topics, but uh, uh, definitely check out this class on the uh, the full-length aquaponic cannabis. We kind of cover everything top to bottom. So if you're interested in that, check that out at apmjclass.com and ap420.com. All righty, guys. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to watch the show. Uh, thank you, everybody, for all of our support over last year. Yesterday was 420. Uh, we're hanging out over on Fumador's show. In fact, let me throw Fumi's site up on, on the thing real quick uh, just to make sure uh, that everyone knows how to find him as well. Uh, this is his website, uh, fumadoro.com. He has all kinds of wonderful photography and um, you know uh, genetic preservation kits and more on there. Uh, you can find out over at fumadoroseeds.co well, is the name of the company and fumador, fumadoro.com. Uh, if you're interested in that, there's some wonderful things. Certainly the best photography of I've seen of cannabis uh, on the web. All right. Um, thank you, everybody, for watching. You can find our podcast on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all the things. Uh, we'll be back again next week on Monday. Um, I don't um, have a, well, we will have a guest on Monday. I don't, we're not ready to announce it yet. Um, Thursday, we have uh, Angela from uh, Aquilitas uh, from up in Canada. Really excited to have her on. She's got a bunch of new data to talk to us about on that. Bunch of cool new projects that she's been working on. So that's going to be super exciting. I think she's about ready to unveil some other cool new projects publicly that there'll be uh, cool new resources for you all to use uh, out there. So that's going to be fun. Um, and then we also have Tommy Chong. Uh, Tommy Chong is going to be on the show on May 12th. Uh, we're going to do a special time, 3 p.m. Pacific, because of his availability. Um, so be sure to tune in May 12th. Uh, we're going to hang out with Tommy Chong. Uh, I'm super excited. Um, I've been listening to Tommy Chong as a kid. My dad used to put on that, um, you know, Tommy Cheech and Chong Christmas, and my mom would get all mad at him for putting it on at Christmas time. And and we listen, you know, and they talk about, uh, you know, the, the, 
you know, magic fairy dust, a little bit for the reindeer, a little bit for Santa, a little bit more for Santa. Anyways, all the goofy shit that they have on that 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 record, of the vinyl, you know, that was like Christmas to me. It was like dad putting that on. So I'm uh, really, really excited to have Tommy Chong on the show. It certainly is like a, a bit of a milestone for us on the show as well. So super stoked on that. And um, just we're going to have a lot of cool guests coming up on the show. I got some cool people lined up that we have uh, they're you know they're going to come on the show but we're working on dates so uh, a lot of cool people a lot we're going to work on trying to get in some more scientists on the show some more clinical people on and uh and really kind of step up the game on on some of the guests on the show we've, we've really uh kind of been uh, on a bit of a roll this year as far as guests and stuff i think you guys uh, would agree and uh, i think you guys can look forward to some really cool ones uh, uh in the queue as well that uh, we haven't announced yet so uh, thanks everybody for watching. Uh, thanks everybody for the support over the last six years. It really truly does mean a lot and um, appreciate you all. Have a great night.